HSC, thanks for coming on Rebellious. How are you? Thank you for having me. How good, good. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So your story is so interesting. I've actually never met anyone who was communed by a governor who spent the amount of time in prison that you did. And quite frankly, you seem pretty normal considering all circumstances. So you went in in 2002, correct? I was doing some quick math in the car on the way over here. So literally Facebook was in its infancy. There was no Instagram, no TikTok iPhone wasn't even available. I think the Palm Trio might have been kind of big at that point. Maybe a BlackBerry, if. <laughs> so, I mean, we were still using like old little cell phones to text on. No, we, I had the little Nokia phone that didn't even have text. On. text right. Was an option you could buy on a different phone. It cost extra for each text. <laughs> you were playing Snake. I was playing Snake. You yeah. was playing Snake. Oh, my God. So um, tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where? So where are you from and uh, how did you grow up? So I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia. My parents had these kind of weird colored pasts. My dad, among other things, like lived under an assumed identity for years before he mm-hmm. was finally caught for federal charges he was being sought on. Mm-hmm. Managed to kind of skate from that. Uh, met my mother at a time where he was on his, he'd been married three times. So my mother was his fourth marriage. She had had a much more kind of straight and narrow mm-hmm. uh, growing up. She was a lawyer. She'd gone to law school, but mm-hmm. they both had issues with substances, which I think kind of contributed to gotcha. the relationship. And even said the reason they were attracted to each other is because they were drinking together. Okay, so the parents were codependent for the most part. To some degree, yeah. To some degree, okay. So I grew up in that home, and they both got sober when I was young, which is, you know, my dad literally put a shotgun in his mouth and tried to kill himself and couldn't do it, and that was what got him sober. My mom's wasn't necessarily as dramatic, but I mean, it was they were not doing well, as you can imagine. Yeah. But then kind of got their lives together, and like we had a home that seemed really normal and happy from the outside, and, you know, I'm still kind of struggling with and dealing with some of the traumatic stuff from childhood and therapy, but I didn't know any different. Because I don't think we do as kids. So I grew mm-hmm. up, I went to school, I loved baseball, I loved Nolan Ryan, yeah. I loved the Ninja Turtles. Like I just, you know, I thought I was like every other kid and in some ways I was. And then just kind of, you know, something happened. I remember everybody talks about either when I was five or when I was in fifth grade, the, these two different stories where I just went from this like bright, like cheerful kid to just reserved. And it was really the beginning of the, the kind of insecurity for me where I felt like everybody yeah. in the room knew something I didn't. And like I was just on the out. And if I could only figure out what this is, then I would right. be okay and be good enough and be were you like like smaller as a child or anything like that? I mean, yeah, I wasn't smaller. I was or, I was just as smart. I was just it was just something that I felt like deep. I was missing. Um, okay, and I think everybody has it. I just feel like I was especially sensitive or whatever the case. But uh, yeah, I feel like that really defined my childhood, really up until the point that I, I did go to prison because I was always chasing some sense of validation or some sense of value or some sense of being worthy. Yeah. Do you think you tried drugs because of the insecurity or do you think it was just like, oh, this is fun, but it also fixed something else at the same time? I think probably the second. Because everybody I know tried drugs, tried drinking, tried different things. I think for me, it was the experience of trying it and being like, oh, my God, this is what I've been looking for. Like, this is the answer. This feels good. (laughs) When I do this, I don't feel insecure. I feel smart enough and good enough and strong enough. So what was the drug that made you feel just really good? You're like, damn, I feel like I can do anything on this. That came later. That was when (laughs) I was 17. That was cocaine. But um. I mean, the first time it was, it was alcohol. I remember okay. the first time I ever got drunk was in, on Grand Bahama Island. I'd never left the country before. I've never left the country since, but I managed to like go through these crazy circumstances that I can't talk about because of an NDA and like get a trip to Grand Bahama Island to go oh, scuba nice. diving. And on the the night there, we're in the bars and we're drinking. And I just remember being like, Hey, I don't feel self-conscious. Like I'm in here dancing with the girls. And so I wait, feel okay. so how old are you at this point? 16? 16. 
Okay, I was going to say, because the Bahamas, they kind of have a weird rule with drinking. It's like, if you meet the bar stool, but I think it's technically 16. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. Okay. So you're 16, Grand Bahama drinking. And I just, I felt amazing. I was just like, hey, I feel okay. Like, Are you with a bunch time. of other kids drinking? Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. And yeah, and then I paid the, the price because the next day we had like 16 foot swells, the whole boat ride oh back to Florida. God. And so I spent the <laughs> entire day on the back of the boat. So I didn't drink again for a while. And that's like a three or four hour boat ride. It's horrible. Oh, God, I couldn't even imagine. Okay. I can't imagine. I've done it before. It's not hungover. Yeah. So, all right. So you're drinking there, 16. And then are you, you're just mostly just partying and having fun. Are you actually actively getting into trouble at this point? Or is it more just I mean, I, I kids definitely, being kids. I did some wrong things, but yeah, kids being kids. Like okay. I stole beer. That was the first time I ever got in trouble was for stealing beer got and it. getting caught. Yeah. I, I didn't really feel like I was off the rails. I was definitely like kind of slowly going off, you know, maybe a, a hill, but it wasn't a cliff yet. Yeah. And then I found cocaine and that was the cliff. That was the moment because yeah. like you said, it just felt like that was what I'd been looking for. I felt like Superman. I felt good yeah. enough, smart enough. And then 15 minutes later, I was like, I need more of that. I need yeah. that. I need to keep going. And it just, it kind of took over my life and I stopped thinking about really anything other than cocaine and how I could get more and what it would look like and how to structure my life around it. Right. A week before I got arrested, a week before I committed my crimes, I had a plane ticket to go see my, I guess then kind of ex-girlfriend who had gone off to college. Got it. I didn't get on the plane because I was so kind of strung out and trying to figure out, well, how am I going to get cocaine on the plane and what am I going to do if I get there and yeah. how am I going to make this happen? <laughs> so you're literally planning your entire day around you getting high. So yeah, full-blown addict behavior at this point. So this addict behavior is happening and I'm assuming probably you need money to get more and all this leads to what what did it start with? And only because I've dealt with it in my family before, usually starts with little robberies from the house and then it progresses. I think I, I mean, I'd probably done that as a kid to like buy cigarettes or buy beer, but you know, stealing a few dollars or quarters, but it wasn't that because I still had, I was still trying to hold on to this idea of integrity. I didn't have it, but I was trying to hold on to that. So the only way we were able to commit this robbery was because the guy was telling me how bad the people were we were stealing from. If it had just been like normal people or good people, I couldn't have done it. What, but, did, what did he say to make you? So he said that, that he had worked for this family and they owned this restaurant and they only uh-huh. hired undocumented immigrants and they only paid them pennies and they kept all the money and all the tips and they kept it in cash and didn't report it. And basically they were exploiting all these people. And again, I, I don't know whether this is true or not. This is just the story he told me. And in mm-hmm. that moment, I was like, OK, well, we're not doing something bad. Like this is more like Robin Hood than actually being a bad guy. And that's not true at all. Like there's no justification (laughs) for what we did. But in that moment that allowed me to hang on to that idea of integrity. And we did. We went and broke into the house and we thought nobody would be there. But there was somebody there. So it became a robbery. I see. Okay. And then when you broke in, did you guys have guns on you? Weapons? One of the guys had a gun. Okay. But did you have a gun on you? No, you you were just kind of along for the rides, you know, snatch and grab. Yeah. Attic behavior is pretty wild. I've heard some wild justifications for what you're doing. That one's actually pretty clever the way they kind of coerced you (laughs) into thinking that to go get it. So at that point, was it the restaurant owner that caught you? Uh, well, nobody caught us. There were, so there was, or the person that was there. I mean, so, yeah, we had gone there, and there were cars up front, and then we came back, and all the cars were gone. It turned out mm-hmm. there was a maid there, so somebody who I guess oh, lived and worked gotcha. in the house, which is even worse because then you have somebody who's already probably you know not making any money, being subjected to this horrible thing. And I just, it was, it was horrible. So did you actually get any money? No, and that's the thing. The, the <laughs> so bag of $50,000 that was supposed to be there, maybe it was, and maybe one of them got it, and I don't right. know, but we didn't find anything. I took, like, a digital camera and, like, half a bottle of liquor. I mean, there was it was the most ill-fated, like, the opposite of Ocean's Eleven thing you can imagine. Oh, my God. Okay, so you literally got nothing except a half a bottle of liquor. So w- the, the police were called on you, I'm assumed. Then when did they catch you? Like, down the street or? No, so they didn't catch us for few days. I'm not actually very clear on the timeline because I wasn't <laughs> sleeping. So I, I thought it was a week later. I remember looking at the paperwork and it was just a few days later uh-huh. because what happened was uh, there was another incident. And in this one, 
when I started doing cocaine, I was incredibly paranoid. I thought everybody was out to get me. And I was like mm-hmm. locking the door and putting the chair in the door, like in my own home, just out of my mind. Yeah. And when we moved out to a hotel, I really felt like I needed something because I saw guys around with, with guns and I was like, well, I want one. So one of my buddies said, Hey, I got a gun to sell you. And so he sold it to me. And then the guys who had stolen it and sold it to him said, we need it back. This started this kind of slow feud for a few weeks. Yeah. And finally it ended uh, after the robbery when we had found somebody to front us more cocaine that we couldn't afford to pay for. We were all sitting around getting high and his pregnant girlfriend called and was like, hey, these guys are at the house and they won't leave and they're threatening mm-hmm. me. And like, I need you to come home. And because I was like newly high again, because I had actually you know been off for like six hours. So the first you know bump of cocaine yeah. felt amazing. I tried to play the hero and I tried to like solve the situation and tell them they were going to leave and got into the shouting match. And we agreed to meet. And when we met, I had this small moment of clarity like hey this is a really bad idea like it was fear it was just realization it was perspective so i left and they chased me and so as we're driving down the road you know i'm still kind of afraid i'm realizing i don't want to be there and i'm getting angry and like how dare you chase me and i'm trying to go away and just all this very self-pitying kind of bs kind of mindset but when the passenger reached around behind him to grab something i thought he was grabbing a gun so i pulled that very same gun out and i shot both of them. oh so you shot them wow okay and they're alive? They're alive. Okay. And so where'd you end up shooting them? This, again, this is not like John McClane where you like aim. I was yeah. just shooting out the side window of the car. Right. Across my body, screaming. Sure it was. Tears coming out. Hollywood style. Yeah. <laughs> so where'd you end up actually hitting them? Um, one of them got hit in the jaw and the buttocks and the other one got hit in the hand. Oh, wow. Okay. So, but lived, but still obviously terrible, egregious. Wow. Okay. So, and then, so as soon as that happened, who actually called the cops at that point? So they made it, they drove to a store and walked in the door and were like bloody. And so the store owner called 911 and that's how they came. And then when they were in the hospital, they gave the description of me, which the cops then connected with the description for the robbery. And they, mm-hmm. they got us the next day. The next day. So after they're out of your sight, where are you? Are you like freaking out in your house? Oh. Well, I, I mean, at that point I didn't have a house. I couldn't or- even afford to stay in the, the crack <laughs> hotel we were staying in. So we were like, Five of us or six of us all staying in this one tiny little apartment downtown. Okay. It was the only place where somebody had a, a lease and we could all go. So we're sitting in there and we're like running out of cocaine. And it went from, you know, having these big bowls of cocaine in these parties to like sneaking into the bathroom to take the last little bit because I didn't want to share it with anybody else and crying and shaking and not knowing what I was doing. Oh my God. It was about the ugliest scene you can imagine. And then when they put it together that you're the guy from the robbery, now the shooting, did they find your location and come get you there? Yeah. So I ended up running, basically running out of cocaine. I actually had a little bit and I dropped it in the toilet and just was like, gave up, went to sleep for the first time in three days Yeah, and woke up to the the SWAT team there. Um, oh my God. So yeah. And I Did was they like kick down your door. Not quite, but almost. So okay. I woke up to one of my co-defendants yelling that the, the police is outside, the police in black are outside. And so I ran around and it was a over under duplex. So I was thinking, well, if I run out the top steps, like then I can get away. Like I'll be coming from the other apartment. And of course not. I ran right into the barrel of a gun. Oh my God. It was not a pleasant experience. Yeah. Right. And then at that point, I'm I'm sure they're like, get on the ground, you know. What he said, just always like, I, I hear the accent and everything. He said, I will shoot you dead, boy. Oh, my. God. And I just remember like the shock of that, but also weirdly the numbness and just being like, please do it. Like, just, yeah. just get this over. I remember reading in your uh, your little bio that you actually felt relieved when you were caught. And that's interesting. Um, I have, unfortunately, my, my brother did some time and he, he expressed the same feeling that he's like, Okay, someone can stop me now. Yeah. Though in that moment he felt that, but eventually I think once the withdrawals kicked in, because he also had a drug abuse issue, then it then that feeling went out the window. He can't believe he was caught. <laughs> but um so then at that point they take you in and 
Are you assigned a public defender or do you actually get a private lawyer or how, how did that work with your family? So initially I was assigned a public defender uh, that I probably actually should have stuck with. But, you know, my mom has always tried to kind of like solve issues and yeah. she was a real estate attorney. So she gotcha. had like reached out and she found somebody and he came in and said he was going to represent me. And yeah, so I, I had a really good lawyer and he went back and forth. But it, thing that I, th- I appreciate most about him wasn't the legal advice. He was like, Hey, you did some really bad shit. Like you need yeah. to, you need to be accountable. Like you need to get out of your head. You need to not feel sorry for yourself. Like, I don't yeah. have time for that. Like if I'm going to represent yeah. you, you're gonna, you're gonna own up to this. And I, I needed that. I needed somebody to kind of yeah. kick me in the ass. And he actually bought me a, a Nelson Mandela's long road to freedom. And he was like, Hey, oh, wow. like if this guy who didn't do anything wrong can spend 30 years in prison, come out a good person, like shut up. Like you, you deserve it. Like you need to go to prison. Like you messed up. Right. And that, again, that really helped. It was, it was the kind of tough love that I wasn't getting anywhere else. And I yeah. needed to hear that. So now you've moved on to you're at the court case and you're waiting for your sentencing, which I have personally been through that with my brother. It is um, I've never felt anxiety like that. And I wasn't even the person on trial because you do feel the judge will go a certain way because you're basically coached that it. Oh, this is what we usually go through. And these are the sentencing guidelines. I personally was blindsided, as were you. So tell me exactly what you're feeling in that moment when the judge rendered your sentence. Sure. So right before, um, before I went to sentencing, the, my lawyer came to the jail and said, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to look at the sentencing guidelines. They call for from eight to 13 years with a midpoint of 10. So you're probably going to get 10 years, but again, you did some really bad stuff. You deserve mm-hmm. it. So that's what I went to the courthouse thinking. And the first thing they did when we sat down was the Commonwealth made a motion saying, well, we want to modify the sentencing guidelines. And so they went and the judge accepted them. And then my lawyer was like, look, we can object, but like, we probably don't have a way to do this. Like they're going to get what they want. But at Were least- they modifying it specifically for you or in general? Specifically for me. Yeah. Okay, specifically. So it's, it's all these scores about like, you know, whether any harm you did was permanent, like whether yeah. you used a weapon, like all these classifications, they modified gotcha. one point, yeah. which took it from eight to 13 to 10 to 16. My lawyer said, look, let's do it now. He's seen the old guidelines. He's more likely to go with them. Like, you know, this is in our best interest. So I agreed. And when the judge sentenced me after, you know, I'd gotten up and I made an apology to the people that I'd hurt. I made an apology to my friends and family. I talked about, you know, what I wanted to need. And I remember in this very kind of like grandstanding, but well-intentioned way, I said, hey, like, please send me somewhere that has rehabilitation. Like, yeah. I see guys locked in this jail that has like rats and cockroaches that don't have enough to eat that are miserable. Yeah. Like, this isn't going to make any better. Mm-hmm. You like, please send me somewhere where I can get help. And the judge was like, well, what help do you need? I said, well, I don't know. Like if I knew I wouldn't be here, like I need yeah. help with substance abuse. I need help with all these things. And so he started reading off the sentence. And I think I probably shouldn't have done that because I pissed him off. And he just reads the sentence. He says, you know, 20 years with 10 suspended or five years with five suspended. And he goes down this, this list because there were 12 charges. And so I'm keeping the math in my head. When he gets done, uh, everybody kind of looks around because nobody knew what it was. And my lawyer asked him and said, your honor, what's the sentence? Like, what did you sentence him to? And he goes, well, I don't know. I just told you. And so they had to have the court reporter read back and do the math. And he sentenced me to 138 years with 106 suspended. So I was going to spend the next 32 years of my life in prison. That is... I- what what did you feel when you finally got to the number 32? I mean, you're just, you just turned 18 at this point, right? So you're still basically, you're basically a teenager still. Were you just absolutely devastated? It was two things. Because I remember looking back and I remember seeing, there's one particular face I remember from the, the gallery, which just had his jaw drop, like you see in a cartoon. Yeah. And there was a sense of like resignation, like my deepest fear my entire life, my deepest insecurity was that like something was wrong with me and I was irredeemable and I wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. And I was like, the judge saw that, like he, he's right. Like this thing yeah. that I've always thought is true. And then there was this other part of me that was just like, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Like this isn't yeah. what they told me. And it, it felt like almost this clean split inside of me and that continued. But 
at the same time, it was kind of dampened. Like I was almost numb until I got back to the jail and they wouldn't even let me go back to my block except to pack my stuff up. And then they put me on suicide watch because they were like, hey, it's 18 year old kid just got a 32 year sentence. Like he might hurt himself. So I was up there and I remember I was listening to we had these little AM FM radios. It cost like, you know, everything you could afford to have. And I was listening and the song came on the, the radio and it said, uh, you know, when I die, bury me shallow so I can hear or I can still feel the rain. Oh my and I God. just lost it and just started like uh. sobbing, racking sobs. How old was the judge? Or I'm sure you don't know the exact age, but looks wise. He was probably in his 50s. I mean, he's he's so he's an interesting case because he was seen as like a patently unfair judge. There were all these issues. He actually got brought up on charges in front of the Judicial Inquiry Review Board. Uh, Both the Commonwealth attorney and the public defender together came and said, hey, this guy can't be on the bench. This is okay. So he's notorious for this. So he went. The review board found him guilty of violating the canon of ethics. He was Mm -hmm. disbarred. Supreme Court overruled that. And it, it's the most ridiculous decision I've ever seen. They're like, yeah, he did all these things. Supreme but Court of Virginia? Virginia. But the deal was that he would get off the bench. Like, you'll get off the bench. But the problem is we didn't have any other judges to take his place. So the day he got off the bench, he heard a case as a substitute judge. And he's still a judge in our area today. But in the vein of rehabilitation, he's, according to the Commonwealth Attorney and the Public Defender's Office, by far the best, most reasoned, most balanced judge. Because it's like this experience of him like getting in trouble, being called to task, actually caused him to reflect and be like, hey, why am I doing this? Like, am I power hungry? Am I like, yeah. is this crazy? And now he's actually doing a great job in his role. That is, that's crazy. So you think he's actually better now that he's gotten in trouble? Well, I, I can't say that, but that's what, you know, that's I have what a good saying. relationship with yeah, the two offices. Have you, did you ever get a chance to speak to him after? No, I was going to say, I don't think you most likely probably aren't allowed to like to contact or there's probably some type of rule. I know I can't talk to anybody from my case, any of the people that I've harmed my co-defendants. Yeah. But I don't know if I could contact him. I've just, you know, I guess all this time I wanted to kind of like, not necessarily to him, it was more to myself and to my family yeah. and really to the people that I hurt. Like I wanted to prove that I could change or I could do more. But yeah, it would it'd be nice to talk to him someday and have a conversation yeah. about, hey, like you were wrong. Like I get Absolutely. it. I understand but you were wrong. When my brother was being sentenced, I remember I actually went up to the bench to talk to the judge and I put some statistics and I, and I told him, I said, you know, my brother is acting this way because he needs drug rehab and he has mental health issues. And he told me very explicitly, he's like, the purpose of the court is to punish, not rehabilitate. And, you know, he was not, uh, wasn't an older person, probably like you said, fifties, maybe even late forties. He wasn't, he wasn't very old at all. And I was, kind of shocked and what i felt from him was absolute he was numb he was completely numb to his job he looked at everyone as a number there was just so many people in line it was just like next case next case next case another thing i noticed dealing with the lawyers is that it was a numbers game like oh well i got you this many points so come on give me a little something over here you know and they play with each other and i noticed that the judge really did have favorites between the state prosecutor versus the private prosecutor, the defendant. And it was, I just couldn't believe this is how they play with people's lives. I'm not discounting or discrediting the person who committed the crime and that they need to be punished in some manner, but it just seemed like a game to me. I mean, if you, if you were to explain to somebody who knows everything about the modern world and modern science, but doesn't know about our criminal legal system, how we do it, they think you were crazy. Absolutely. We don't actually ask people to take accountability. We ask them to play a a percentage game and see whether they can get off and they have enough money to buy their way out or if they don't. And like maybe they get convicted for something they didn't do because they have to plead guilty because they have to get out to try to take care of their kids. And otherwise they're going to be in in jail for a year. 
And then we stick them in a place that's really inhumane and we don't give them skills or services. We don't better them. We don't heal them. Mm -hmm. And then we wonder after collecting them with, you know, hundreds or thousands of people in similar situations, we just cast them into the world without any yeah. support or any guidance. Then we wonder why they keep coming back. Like it's, yeah. it's insane. Why do you think America has such a black and white view when it comes to the prison system? I think that's shifting, but I think it's kind of the like I agree, the, the John Wayne culture. Mm -hmm. Like we like the idea, at least in, in certain parts of this country, of like a cowboy who comes in swift justice and no no remorse, and yeah, we don't take into account the reality of of how many false convictions there are, how many people we basically traumatize further in the prison system who then recidivate and go back to prison who wouldn't yeah. necessarily, or how successful systems are that that are otherwise. And I think it's just out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. One of the most common images. I think it's that. You know, we have walls around a prison and we think it's to keep people in, but in so many cases, it's to keep people out. Like, I cannot tell you how That's a good point. reticent they are to allow anyone from the public to come in and actually see how a prison is run. Because I think if people knew this was the way their tax dollars were being spent, they would be horrified. Yes. And I was personally horrified when I visited my brother in prison. So, all right. So you're convicted. You got your sentencing. And now you're... Yes. So I was I was in the county jail. And then a mm -hmm. few weeks after being convicted or after, after being sentenced, mm -hmm. I was sent to what's called a receiving prison, which is a central location where they classify you based on all the, the situation or all the conditions of your situation and then send you to one of the level prisons, like mm -hmm. all the way from a work center up to a supermax. Right. OK. And what preconceived notions did you have walking into prison? Was it everybody's like someone's going to try to mess with you? Like you're going to have to fight your first day. Did any of that actually happen? None of what people told me was true. Okay. But, and it was so weird because in the jail, the two stories were, it's going to be so much better in the jail. You're going to like it so much more. And also everybody's getting raped and stabbed. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. And I went in and the receiving prison wasn't that much better, yeah. but we got better food. We got more time outside because I didn't leave the jail. I didn't go outside from the jail, except in the prison transport van where you get in the van while inside and then mm -hmm. kind of see some daylight as you're walking to the courtroom. So I got to go outside for the first time. I got horribly sunburned, but it was worth it. Yeah. Um, and we got to actually move around and it was just people trying to find their way. And then when I got to the, the major prison, like the level four, people had already been there and established. Like in the receiving mm -hmm. prison, everybody was transient or everybody was transitory. So there was no real set culture. Once yeah. I got to the regular prison, like people had their roles and, and they played their roles and, and things were kind of established. And that was very different. And what surprised me was I remember the first day I walked in and I was expecting this zoo or this this bloodbath. And it was just people like writing letters and playing cards and talking on the phone. But then my third or fourth day in, we would wake up for breakfast. It would be between five or five 30 and all our doors were automatic there. And so they would open your door. If you waved your hand, you would walk out in the pod and then they would lock all the doors and you would wait for like five minutes or 20 minutes or an hour for them to call chow. And then mm -hmm. you'd come back and lock in your cell. And I came out and it was usually quiet because people were really tired, but I noticed it was like extra quiet. And then mm -hmm. these two guys started arguing and got louder and louder. And then one reached in his pants and pulled out this giant Rambo knife. Oh my God. The other one had this giant <laughs> lock in a sock. And I was just like this. Okay. Like now I see yeah. what they're talking he about. He pulled this out a it. shank. Yeah. And did they actually they, uh, stab each other? It was even worse. So the guy with the lock in a sock and the uh -huh. way you do this, like he actually put the locks inside a sock. You're supposed to hook them around the sock and then wield it. So the lock hit somebody. So the other guy picked up one of those like rounded trash can lids with like a flap door. Yeah. And is holding the knife and essentially a shield. The other guy swings the lock in the sock. It hits the shield, blasts the two locks out. And I was literally holding oh an empty God. sock against a guy with a knife and a shield. <laughs> and I was like, this is horrible. They started chasing each other around the pot and then they called chow. Because the COs hadn't even noticed what was happening. So we all just got out of there. And so we don't know exactly what happened, but they were both still alive when we got back. That's ridiculous. I agree. That Well, that's actually, that's an interesting makeshift, the lock and the sock. I've never heard of that one. So, okay. So that was day three of prison, correct? So then I also saw on your TikTok, you actually had a serial killer roommate. I did. 
But you didn't know he was a serial killer for six months. Um, so How he, was he? He was this quiet little old man. And I, I remember because mm-hmm. I was moving to the woodshop pod, which is a worker spot for all the people in the factory. And so that meant everybody had a job. So everybody had enough to eat. So there wasn't mm-hmm. stealing. You didn't have to worry about the same kind of issues. It was just people were happier and healthier. It was a great place to be. But my main focus, even though I was, I guess I had just turned 19 at that point, I didn't want to go in with a young kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go in. Somebody was loud and crazy and into gang stuff. And so this yeah. little old man seemed perfect. Was he your actual first cellmate? He was my second. Second. Okay, got it. So I, I got in, I had to apply for the job, and then they moved me in there. I see. Okay. Um, and then, so, you know, he was great. He, you know, we watched Jeopardy together, and he, mm-hmm. like, taught me how to shave because I had been, you know, hadn't been able to grow a beard when I first went in. And he helped me improve my vocabulary, and I'd work on my college stuff. I'd ask him a question, he'd give me answers. And he was just, like, a vuncular, comfortable, you know, character. Yeah. But there were, there were like, a few times where it was really uncomfortable. I remember that this was before I actually found out, and I just kind of chalked it up to... Something strange. I remember he spilled his coffee and he just started like screaming at himself, like stupid, stupid. And I was like, oh, my God, like he must be having a really bad day. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, I had I always felt bad because he never got a visit. He never had a phone call. He never got a ma- any mail. And I was like, God, that feels terrible. And he had he'd been deployed to Japan. He had done three tours in Vietnam and then been deployed to Japan. OK, so he was a Vietnam vet. And my stepmother had been over there while my grandfather was doing missionary work. And I was mm-hmm. like, hey, would you write this guy a letter? Just like mention Japan. I think it put a smile on his face. Like would make everything better. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks later, she comes to visit me and she's like, Jesse, I got to talk to you. Like, so I looked this guy up that you wanted me to write. And like, I didn't know whether to tell you, but like, he's a serial killer. Like oh, he's convicted of this murder and he's been investigated in this and he's expected and all like, this guy's crazy. Like, are, are you okay? Like, do you want to do this? And so I'm kind of in shock and I'm like, well, how do I what do I do with this? Like, what do I do with this information? And then I went back and I don't, I don't even know what possessed me, but I was like, Hey, I got to tell you something. Remember how I told you I was going to get my stepmom to write you? Well, and he just, before I could get it out, he was like, Oh, you did your homework, huh? And he kind of oh, laughed. That's and I was like, so oh. scary. That just gave me chills. <laughs> but what's so strange is I was incredibly off put in that moment. Like that was incredibly uncomfortable, Yeah, but nothing really changed. Like I, okay. I thought about, should I move out of the cell and should I mm-hmm. do this? And, and it just, like he continued. We still played Jeopardy. We still, and it just it blew my mind because I'd seen someone who was com- capable of like mm-hmm. some of the worst things we can imagine, but who in my life was actually really kind and caring and educational. Yes. And it it made me realize that people aren't just one thing. And it really kind of opened my mind to the fact that everybody has something they're struggling with. Hopefully, yes. not all being a serial killer, but that we're more complicated <laughs> than just the black and white of the prison system or any yes. individual that we like to think. Oh yes, humans are uh, complicated onions. I would say so. Who did he kill? Was it was it women? Was it men? What I found out later, he was he was suspected in the, the murder of 16 women because oh they had. Okay. So, so you would, were safe because you're a guy. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. And I, I didn't really think about that later. But so one of the military bases that he had been on uh, after Vietnam in the States, mm-hmm. they after he was wanted for the one in Virginia, he had gone on the run. He'd, he'd lived a while in, in uh, Las Vegas. He had committed a bank robbery. It was like this whole crazy thing. Yeah. They went back to where he had been stationed and they found this like mass grave of women's bodies that they believed he had killed. And it was just Holy like shit. horrifying to think that he was like on base getting away with this over and over and over. So did he did he admit that he did it or it was just like, oh, you did your homework and left it kind of. So, we, I mean, we talked about it a couple of okay. times because I got the impression that he liked to talk about it or he liked, but he mm. never directly admitted it. He talked okay. about how the FBI had come to investigate and they had come to interview him. And he said there were two guys and Mm -hmm. one said, Hey, I don't think you did it. Like they basically like good cop, bad cop. But he said, the guy asked me to take a polygraph and he smiles and he's like, yeah, but they don't know. Like, what do you think I did in Vietnam? Like, you think I don't know how to take a polygraph? And I was just like, how do you, what do I do with that? Like, how do I, are you telling me like they just are bad investigators? You bragging that you got away with it. So he knows how to beat a polygraph. That's what he was saying. Well, that's what he was alluding to. Oh, interesting. If you go back and read his story, which I didn't do until I got out. He was claiming that this whole thing was a CIA setup 
because he had worked for Whitehall Street after Vietnam. He'd done these mm-hmm. things. And somebody like, so I showed his DD-214. He had, he had actually sent it home to my mom because he said, hey, is there a place you can send Hope Gaming? So he gave it to me and I sent it to her. And so I showed it on TikTok and all these service members were like, this dude is like legit. He is one of the most decorated people I've ever seen. Like, who the hell is this guy? And that was when it was like, again, is there any truth to this? Like, maybe, I don't know. You would think the CIA could just like stick a needle in his Are neck you allowed to say his up. name? Gregory Barker. Gregory Barker. Okay. I'll have to look him up afterwards. That's crazy. So do you know if the murders were before Vietnam or after? My understanding is they were all after. Okay. So maybe something unlocked in Vietnam. Well, I, you know, I think that's a popular idea. Oh, and yeah, the way he said, that, you know, yelled at himself about the coffee really makes me think of like childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And he had talked a little bit about his, his father was career military. He had grown up with his mom and he made it very, very clear that his mom had been incredibly violent with him. But okay. he made it sound like, you know, she loved me, so she beat me good. Like she and when I thought about that, I was like, that sounds like what a like a traumatizing mother would do, like yelling and screaming and you made a mess and you're bad. And mm-hmm. I wonder if there's just like some anger towards women or some, you know, some effect of that then compounded with the, the trauma of Vietnam. Because, I mean, he was besides being really well decorated. He was he used to recite the names of all the people in his unit that he lost. Like he remembered every kid's name. He was like, I remember them and I will never forget them and I'll never stop saying. them. And so it's. Again, this really complicated, confusing thing about like, who was this guy really? I don't think there is an answer. I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary and don't come for me in the comments, people. I think it's crazy, not insane or insane, not crazy. I, I can't remember which way it was done. It's on HBO. It's about this psychologist. Her first name's Dorothy. I forget her last name. But she interviewed some of the most prolific serial killers ever. And she actually... Her diagnosis is that basically they go into, they disassociate in their brain when they do these murders. And a lot of it comes from violent childhoods. You know, something really egregious happened to them in their childhood. And that's basically when they disassociate, that's them killing off whoever hurt them in their childhood. And she said that, uh, like, for example, she never believed that Ted Bundy actually killed because he was into hardcore porn. That's what he blamed it on towards right before he was executed. She actually found out that he was abused heavily by his grandfather and and a few other things. So it's such an interesting documentary. So just talking about that guy, I just wonder if that's the same case. But it it's amazing that you can sit there and have just normal, fun conversations with this man, but it's like, but he also killed like 12 people. And that's what's so strange about <laughs> being in a major prison is probably, you know, a quarter to half of the people there are there for murder. Yeah. Everybody's there for violent charges. Yeah. And yet these are the people you like play spades with or you eat dinner with or you, you know, yeah. go to church with or whatever people do. And there, there's a normalcy to it. And it, what it really showed me is that like people are just people. And sometimes they've done terrible things. Sometimes almost always they've had terrible things done to them, but they're just people. And it, yeah. it's really hard to wrap my head around that in the world when people say, oh, well, you know, they're different or they're other or they're it's like, probably you're one you know environment, one situation, yeah. one mistake away from being that person. And I, I don't know how you don't see it. So do you do you believe that people are born evil or do you think it's definitely nature over or do you believe it's nurture over nature, meaning something had to have happened to them to provoke this? You know, I'll give you an example. I have a really good friend who could be defined as a sociopath. Okay, who is kind and caring and amazing. Mm -hmm. Like he's a good human being, but he has all the characteristics. He doesn't feel emotion toward other people. He doesn't see other people except in the way that he's learned to kind of like appreciate and respect other people. Mm -hmm. But I think in a different environment, he would absolutely be a monster. 
So I think that there's some combination of the two. I think there may be some predisposition towards violence. There's there's a lot of controversy around like the rage gene and a lot of the kind of dishonest studies have been done. Mm -hmm. But there's that. But then almost everybody that I met in prison that was in there for something horrible could tell me these horrible stories about what had been done to them or what they'd experienced or what they'd seen growing up. There's a quote that no one who does violence is ever doing it for the first time. They've always experienced it. And I I really Mm, find that to be true. So maybe some people, again, there's some tiny portion of the population have some like genetic predisposition towards monstrosity. But generally, I just found people kind of processing trauma in probably the most unhealthy way possible. Does that make you more suspicious now that you're out because you understand the monsters they can become? Or does that actually make you feel a little more comfortable because you're like, okay, I've seen this part, but I also know that you can be something else when you're talking to people that have not been in prison? It makes me, if anything, I'm more comfortable and it makes me more aware because mm-hmm. I realize that I'm like, I'm on a daily path and I can like feed, yeah. if you have the idea of like feeding two, two parts. Well, if I'm feeding the part that is like healthy and caring and loving, mm-hmm. but if I go back to feeding the other part, I could just as easily go back to robbing mm-hmm. or hurting or, or, you know, doing things to other people. And so I constantly try to nourish that today. I was actually having a call with somebody today about like, Hey, I want to make sure that in this, you know, in this interaction with you, like I'm, I'm being the person that I want to be. I'm being the healthiest, the happiest, mm-hmm. the most supportive. Um, and I think I see that in this in, in other people because I see people who've done incredibly dishonest things or people who've been wildly successful who are just not living a good life. And I yeah. can see that and recognize it and be like, you know what? I'm I'm really glad you're successful, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stay over here. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. So and then also I saw that did you get a girlfriend while you were in prison? I had a few. <laughs> okay, so how does that work? How does one get a girlfriend while you're in prison? So it, it, a number of ways. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, friends or girlfriends from high school or, or a boyfriend, whatever you're friends. into. Well, boyfriends are a lot easier. Like if yeah, you want a boyfriend, right. but so it could be somebody, you know, or mm-hmm. often it was these pen pal sites. And okay. so they're right at prisoner.com or right. I don't know. They're all the different ones. And I would put up what's essentially a classified ad of saying, Hey, here I am. I'm, I want somebody to talk to. And theoretically it's just for friendship, but 90% of the time it's somebody on the inside looking for some kind of intense connection and somebody on the outside looking for some kind of intense connection. Do you find people on the outside who are willing to write to a prisoner? Not that I'm trying to segregate you all into some terrible group, but just thinking, you know, someone who's never dealt with anyone in prison, what do you think their intentions are? I can kind of understand like the older lady, just like, oh, I want to do something good for the community, but like someone my age or younger, what do you think the intention is? Do you think they're mentally a little... I think there, I think a lot of women and a lot have been open about this, about having yeah. experienced abuse or trauma and don't feel safe in proximity, but want an emotional connection. I see. Um, and I think I'd say it's probably 90 or 95 are not really the healthiest people. You have probably five or 10 percent that actually are just people who happen to end up in the circumstance or connect with okay. somebody. I actually the relationship. That's a, that's a lot to sift through. Oh, it is. A lot of, like 90 percent are shit. <laughs> that's well, I don't want to say shit. I just. Well, OK, maybe uh, I would say people not who are healthy. People yeah. are struggling. And so those were the majority of the relationships I had. Just not healthy, yeah. not sustainable. Definitely did not do my mental health any good. Right. But also, I mean, one of them, probably the most unhealthy relationship I've ever had in my life, put me on kind of a renewed path for like, hey, I need to change a lot of things in my life. Mm-hmm. Like what I'm doing isn't working. I, let me do things differently. So how does the profile work? Like, are you, do you put like your, your updated prison photo Okay, so you're allowed you you're allowed to get access to that. So we can. So what we have to do is either you like we had a picture man. You could buy a picture ticket at commissary, take okay. it to him on certain days, and he would take a picture of you, and then you could mail that with your your handwritten or your maybe typed in the law library thing to them, or you could send it out to somebody on the street and they could submit it online. Uh, it. But yeah, you, you need to either send it in and have the money to have it posted, or have somebody on the outside to help you. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and so did any of them ever get to the point where they actually like came and visited you? Yes. Yeah, so the, the 
the craziest situation. So I met this woman and she was in Egypt. She was doing a dual master's program at oh, a Egypt. university wow. in Egypt. And I was, I mean, she was perfect. I was just like, but she was an American. She was an American. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. She was doing a studying abroad, Got um, it. but she was like brilliant. She was into the same thing. She was funny. I was like, Oh my God, wow. this is amazing. But you know, she's in Egypt. We started talking, developed this just incredible intense connection. And then uh, she actually finished school and went to an internship in DC She's from the West Coast, but she was like, oh, well, maybe I'll get to see you. And so literally from thousands of miles away to being right down the road to then coming to see me. And it was it was like the most amazing, tumultuous, crazy six months of my life. But it ended up in literally me realizing that, like, if I kept doing this, I was going to kill myself. It was profoundly unhealthy. OK, so walk me through that. So, you know, OK, a lot of people think this. They think anyone can go visit anyone in prison. That's not true. You actually have to be approved. I remember going through the the entire process for my brother. And you had to submit a lot of documentation and it took a while to get approved. So it's not like what the movies like Shawshank or something where anyone can just show up and, and say hello to you. So you knew she was coming. How do you prepare in prison? Like, cause my brother told me a lot of makeshift things they would do. Like, did the boys help you get like cologne and like, <laughs> do you get to, like shave? Like, how did you prepare for your, your girl to come? Yeah. Um, so we, that was back before they, they had a lawsuit over the policy, but we could only have a quarter inch long hair. We could have no facial hair except for a mustache. So okay. don't have to worry about that. But okay, I think gotcha. I did I did get like a fresh haircut. <laughs> Somebody gave me some cologne. I, I mean, I was so nervous and so excited. Did but you I, make her like makeshift flowers? We can't bring anything in. Like can't bring guys anything. would smuggle right. things in, but like yeah, okay. you can't bring anything in from that side. And usually visitors can't bring anything in. Got it. But yeah, I do remember like I... What we did one time is I snuck in a list that was from like the New York Times. It was what are the 20 questions you can ask somebody and then look them in the eyes and you'll fall in love. And like, we're oh like, hey, God. we can make this even stronger. <laughs> so like snuck this list in and then like had a it Cosmo in a Cosmo article. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and we did. We went through the list and we did it. And um, but it was just, yeah, it was insane. It was the so very- you you could um, you didn't have any glass between you. You could touch you. OK. That was one thing that blew my mind when I went to see my brother. I thought I was just going to like sit and be with the glass and talking to him over a phone. But no, I walked in and because unfortunately my brother had an escape charge, he was considered closed management. So I had to see him with other closed management prisoners. And of course, my brother was, he was decently popular. Um, and so everyone's like, oh man, your sister, let's talk to her. And I was talking to murderers, rapists, and like you said, I, it was a bit of a mind fuck for me because like, I know you did terrible things, but like, you're kind of funny. We're having a good time here. I'm buying them commissary, you know, because you're allowed to buy the comment. I don't know about Virginia, but in Florida here, I could buy like a deck of cards. We could buy board games. We were allowed to take pictures with them. There was a bunch of things you could do. I don't think I did all of them. So what were you allowed to do with your girl? Like, so there was a small bookshelf that had like Bibles and a few books that had been uh-huh. donated, mostly children's books for, for parents who were Got there. It. There were a couple of board games or card games or like a decks of cards. And then there were vending machines. Yeah. And that used to be the thing. All the, all the, like they call them prison wifeys would like go to the vending machines and have this like stack of food for the guy when he came out and all the Aww. things he couldn't get in prison and he couldn't do. So she, I remember she would do that. She would like, she'd always get the things she knew I really liked and she would stand up and she would give me a big hug. But yeah, I mean, that was it. We then had to sit on opposite sides of the table with each other because right. there were four seats but if you could like sit next, sometimes you could get away with sitting next to her if there were other people. But if it was ever just a man and a woman, you had to sit on the other side. Interesting. They were pretty open, actually. The Florida one, I I could hug my brother. I mean, they they damn near like did a cavity search on me before I walked in. They even got mad because I wasn't wearing. I was wearing one of those shirts that was like a shirt 
with a built-in bra. Oh, yeah. They don't like built-in bras. Like, it has to be a real bra. So, literally, the CO forced me to leave the prison. I had to go to Walmart and buy a real bra, not a built-in bra. That was the only way I was allowed in. But we were allowed to, like, hug, dance. Not that I dance with my brother, but I'm just saying. Like, it was very open. I was actually extremely surprised. So it was not that way in Virginia. A little more. You got a hug and a kiss when you first came in. You were allowed to hold hands. But, like, if you even, like, were, like, stroking each other's hands, some people would come over and yell at you. And you were allowed to stand together when you took a photo. But otherwise, you couldn't be up together. Um, And, I mean, there were were definitely, like, some pregnancies that happened in the photo area and some things that happened. But Mm. it was not uh, not wide open all the time. It was really just people taking advantage of a very specific situation. Now, does Virginia allow conjugal visits? I don't think Florida does either. Honestly, I'm not sure if that's someone needs to tell me if that's true or not. And I'm assuming you can only do it if you're married. And they're like, there used to be five states or six states. And now I think there's one that's dropped it off. But yeah, you have to be married. And um, Mm -hmm. like in some states, you have to be married for a period of time. Like if you've been married for three years, you're then eligible. But you can't just like marry somebody and start having conjugal Yeah, I could see someone totally (laughs) working that. I I definitely thought about this. I didn't think about going home. I thought about going to a prison system where I could have conjugal visits and getting married. Like that was. Oh, really? So like how how would that work? You would leave the Virginia state? So there's there's a what's called an interstate compact between most of the states Uh that basically says, hey, if you're from Montana and you get locked up in Virginia, it doesn't make sense for you to stay there. So if you send us 10 prisoners, we'll send you 10. So you can basically go back to the place where you have family ties, but only if you have no family in the state where you're currently being housed. So we came up with this plan when my mother was retiring. She was like, hey, maybe I want to move. Maybe I want to go somewhere else. I was like, well, can you go to like Washington State because they have conjugal visits there? And she could go and either live there full time or even just like get residency. So then I could move and then she could leave and I'd already be there. I see. And okay, so the girl that came to Washington, was she on board with this plan? Was that girl? It was, she was the one I had the plan with. Yeah. I see. Yeah. It was, it was, we talked about it. We really wanted to make it happen. It didn't make any sense. The relationship was the most unhealthy thing I've ever done (laughs) in my life. But with those incredible highs and incredible lows, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to to not like be in that bubble of, you know, imagination and fantasy. And right. And, and also considering where you are, what else do you have to look forward to? And in so many respects, so that, that completely makes sense for that to happen. You also said you had a pen pal for 16 years. Yeah. This lady, Mary. I love Mary to death. <laughs> so, and you guys are still friends to this day. We are. That's amazing. And so I'm assuming she's an older lady. Okay. And then how, what was her reasoning for doing this? Just to help the community? So she worked my mother's office. And okay. one thing that my mother did really well was make sure I was supported and connected when I was in. Awesome. So she went around her entire office. She's like, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to write my son. And I remember Mary wrote me this like incredibly condescending Christmas card. And it just, it was basically, I'm so sorry that you're in such a bad place and that you're whatever it was. I just remember being really angry and being like, no, like, and so I wrote her back. I was like, I think you meant well, but this is how I interpreted this. And I don't know what happened, but yeah, we wrote each other a letter every week for 16 years. And when we started getting email in 2015, sometimes Mm -hmm. she would write me a letter. I mean, an email every day, just checking in. And so I knew all about her partner and her kids and her grandkids and where she lived and her hopes and her dreams. And I get to like, get out and actually like go to the place she lives and hang out with them. And it's, it's well, been really amazing. That just kind of blew my mind for a second. So you were in in 2002. You guys don't get email access until 2015. So you were handwriting letters for over 10 years. And how was that when you guys got email? Was that like a big thing when oh, that huge. was available? Okay. And then by the time you got out, 
Did you guys have the video one as well? We got it, I think, in around like 2018. And okay. so I, I had a, I didn't have a lot, but I had a couple people that I did video visits with. But they were so expensive and they tended to like break down yes. and just not hook up. And uh, but especially like I had a couple pen pals overseas. We would do yeah. that. But otherwise, people would just be like, yeah, no, we're good. We'll like wait and see you. But during COVID, when there were no visits for basically two years, that's what they were trying to use it for. And that was when it was worse because it would always break down and it wouldn't work. And it was like, come on, people like, can you at least like make this work? How did that ha- how did that go when COVID hit the prison system. I mean, did did you have a big outbreak when you were there? Yeah. So we, yeah. I mean, we, we heard about it and it was just the same thing for everybody else. It's like yeah. this little thing in China and then this little thing on the East Coast. Yeah. And then I remember my grandfather. It never actually, happened here. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Florida's notorious for that. But my grandfather used to come uh, visit me every month. Yeah. And he had, he had had to go to a funeral. And he had to do something else. So he basically missed a month. Mm-hmm. And he was coming up that Saturday. And that Friday, they posted a, a memo on the wall that said, all visits are suspended indefinitely. And that was the first thing we saw. And then they shut schools down and then they shut. So we're all just like sitting inside, but we, we still got some wreck. We just couldn't interact with people. And then I remember the day that I was actually in the uh, the honor pod. So we had like this little back patio and we heard these carts and they were like laundry carts. And all of a sudden we go outside and there's nurses in full like PPE get ups and guys pushing their carts down to the hole because they were just going to lock everybody who had COVID in the hole. And then just like that was it. Within the, the course of the next few weeks, we had four guys die. And it was wow. just like, oh, oh. crap. My God. And when did you were you was it mandatory for you guys to take the vaccine? The vaccine wasn't mandatory. They would they would make us get tested and they would isolate us. And there were certain things where they would incentivize like, you know, a year, a year and a half later when they started doing limited school, like you could only go to school if you got a vaccine or you could only I think you'd only get a visit if you had vaccine. But it was forced people to do it. But and the people who died were any of them younger? Was it mostly older? Two of the guys were older and it was like it kind of made sense. Like, okay, the two of the guys, it it was just it was a shock. Like they may have had pre-existing conditions. They may didn't, you know, the live the healthiest life. But one of them had worked like 12 hours a day in the kitchen and was in really good shape and used to work out. And he just dropped dead. And it was like, oh, I also saw that you got your bachelor's degree. So how does that work? How do you guys take tests in prison? I mean, do do you have to have like another teacher there? And like, is cheating ever an issue? I, I mean, does that happen? Do you have enough people in the same classes for that to happen? Or is, or am I totally thinking about this the wrong way? Kind of. So I actually started when I was in the jail. Uh, okay. You know, again, my mother really trying to make sure I had a chance when I got out insisted like you're going to do something with this time. Like I'm going to make sure. So she enrolled me while I was still in the jail before I had even been sentenced. And they would send you these workbooks and these textbooks, and you basically have to study on your own. There's no organized class. There's oh, no see. anything. Okay. And then when it comes time for a test, the principal in each institution uh, will sit down with you and proctor the test. And so you have to do that. Now, eventually, they started having some community course classes coming in for small groups of people. But when it was just by correspondence like mine, there would maybe be four or five people on a compound of 1,200 people able to take a class. It was usually VA benefits or just somebody whose family had money or somebody whose church had raised money. But it was it was really inaccessible. Um, So it was not a big group. It wasn't a big thing about cheating. And yeah, the the principal would just sit in there and, you know, sit with you. And I mean, I probably could have like written stuff on my hand, but as intimidated as I would when I first started taking classes, thinking like there's no way I'll be able to do this. It wasn't that hard. So it was like, I don't feel the need to like cheat. Like I actually want to be a different person. I want to have integrity. And what somebody told me that really helped me was like, look. At the end of the day, nobody's going to care what your GPA is. They just want to know if you graduate. Like, yeah, if you want to get into a super elite, you know, master's program, really focus on it. But otherwise, just get it done. And so I got really good grades. But I I also didn't put the pressure on myself that I'd put when I was in school earlier. Gotcha. And what was your degree in? Uh, Psychology. Okay, nice. All right. And so about how many out of the prisoners actually did finish their bachelor's degree? Was it common for people to do that or was it like? Incredibly uncommon. I mean, maybe one out of 1,200. Do you think that it's. Do you think even making it mandatory would even help people pursue it? So you do have to, you get punished if you don't take a GED, up to a GED. 
Oh, really? Okay, I didn't know. At least that. in Virginia. Okay. Um, and they, you know, some places they would literally put you in the hole. Other places they'll just like take your good times. So you have to spend more time in prison. But after that, the opportunities are really limited because I mean, my college degree over the course of fifteen years probably cost forty thousand dollars. Yeah. People don't have that kind of money. Now there's a the Pell Grant has been expanded starting July of this year, though the logistics aren't in place that'll allow people to actually go to college. And I did a presentation for Upsia. They're trying to expand for all these universities, so it's, okay. it's going to be hopeful. But yeah, I think improved access to education is incredibly important. So your mom paid for yours? Okay, so if someone doesn't have someone to pay for it, it's that grant you were saying? Yeah, that, so the, the Pell Grant has now grant. been expanded to allow people who are incarcerated to get at least up to a two-year, possibly a four-year degree. Yeah, okay, gotcha. I, I think that should be, I don't know if the word's mandatory, but anything to help rehabilitate them, use their time wisely. I agree. One thing that I found my brother had a really tough time with is his sleep schedule. Some people would go in there and just be up all night and you can drink coffee around the clock. And I find just not having a simple routine is going to sleep at a certain time, waking up at a certain time, making your bed really does not set up your day. And if your day is not set up, obviously you're not going to finish anything that you're supposed to set out to do. Did you struggle with that in the beginning? Oh, very much so. I mean, yeah. Luckily, I eventually found the people around me who kind of inspired me and said, hey, you need a routine. Like, that's how we survive. That's how yeah. we grow. And so that's, you know, I told you I, I got up and drove to Naples. I drove two hours this morning. Yeah. But I get up at 5 or 5.30 every morning. So that's not unusual because once I kind of grew up and changed in there, I was like, I don't want to be with the guys who are up all night partying. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to go to bed early. I want to get up early. I want to have my cup of coffee when it's quiet, when nobody's up doing crazy stuff. Like, I built that structure. But if somebody hasn't been in for long enough, because I definitely wouldn't have done it in three years. If somebody hasn't been in long enough or don't have the right people around them. A lot of people do. They stay up all night. They stay drunk. They stay high. They, they mess around. They gamble. They get in trouble. They get in fights yeah. because there is no structure from the outside. They really have to create it. Got it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you're saying if it's like basically less than five years, people have a hard time getting into the routine, especially if they're not yeah, mentally. Generally. I see. Okay. So what year did you finally, did it click for you? Was it like year five, year three? I mean, I think there were like tiers of it. I mm -hmm. mean, I think I, it definitely hit me when I first was sitting in the jail and was like, I have to figure out something to do. Having college really helped because I had yeah. a deadline then. You know, nothing else has a deadline. Time is meaningless when you're in jail. Yeah. Like, okay, I'll do this in 30 years. But I think, yeah, probably at about five years, there was a really big shift for me. And then probably about 10 years and then 15. There, there was just these shifts along the way. And it was just, it was almost like more refining what I realized. Like, hey, I want to do better. Like, I need to cut some things out of my life or I need to yeah. include some different people in my life. And I just found that to be a, a process of like continuing. And I, I do that now in the world. Like yeah. it's amazing how different I am now than the person I was almost two years ago. How easy was it for you to, I didn't know if you did this, but you tell me if you do. Um, how easy is it to get drugs and get into gambling in jail? That's I mean, about the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> do you find it easier than even out here in the free world? I mean, you, you, you may not get your like quality or choice of drugs. Sure, but sure. You're gonna, if you want to get high, you're going to get high. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And do you think majority of the guards are the ones that are in on it? I can't speak for Florida. I've heard some horror stories about Florida. And I wouldn't say the majority of guards, but... Uh, maybe not majority, but obviously it has to come from them at one point. Yeah. How else would it get in? There, so there are some ingenious stories. People will talk about visitation or about drones, and those things do happen. But what I found is the people who work in a prison, the people who live in a prison, tend to come from the same communities. And I cannot tell you how many people are somebody's cousin or somebody's friend or somebody's whatever... Come get a job at the prison, make twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in a month or two, and then leave. And it's like, well, why not? Interesting. Okay, so I, I didn't realize it could work that way. And I'm sure there's like certain jobs at the prison that gives you access, maybe to the outside world, a little bit easier. 
not not so much the higher level prison, the lower level. Yeah. Okay. At, at like the three and the four I was at, there was no such thing as an outside worker. But I there see. were there were workers from the work camp who would come do all the outside maintenance, and sometimes there would be like coordination between that. Again, mostly with staff. Got it. So when you when you came in, you're just 18 years old. What was your friend group like? Did you have a diverse set of friends before you got into prison? And yes or no, um, when you got into prison, did your mindset change on the other types of people that were in prison? Like, would you have ever been friends with them if it wasn't for the prison? So I kind of got lost in this. I, I speak Spanish and I, I have since I was in middle school. And so I was running with this, like this group of Latinos and I don't know that they were really like the identity I had, but they were the people that I liked being around. There was something to me that felt exotic. That was also my dad. I mean, when he lived under that assumed identity, it was his Philip Ortega because he spoke Spanish and he was dark skinned so he could pass as a Latino. So I think some of this was like replaying, trying to recreate, you know, my dad's experience. But then, I mean, I had, I had lots of friends from childhood, lots of community friends, just kind of this weird mix of people. And then when I got inside, yeah, I would not have talked to most of the people that I talked to on the outside just because we wouldn't have come across each other or we didn't have anything in common. But some of those people ended up being like my favorite people. And I've talked about how Virginia isn't segregated by race like some states are. Even so, there are these kind of informal lines. Like I used to remember in the chow hall, the front would usually be white and the back would usually be black. And so when I first got to Buckingham, I remember not liking that and like making a point. I had a buddy who was a black guy and I would go sit with him every day. And certain guys would like scoff at me and be like, oh, why do you always go sit back there? Because you're an asshole. That's why. Like, that's why I go sit back there. Yeah. Um, But generally just it exposed me to a different walk of life and people who had grown up very differently because I grew up in a middle class home that may have had some problems. But, you know, I. We had a period where I thought Mexican food was a tortilla with state cheese on it. But like <laughs> at the same time, I never went hungry. I, I never yeah. experienced the same level of uh, a lot of things that people did. And talking to people and hearing the horror stories from foster care and hearing about people's experience really opened my mind to just how messed up the system as a whole, not just prison, but like yeah. the kind of way we support raising children and bringing them into the world. So when you went in, oh, when you were in, did you immediately notice the segregation of gangs? So the, the gang thing wasn't as Nearly as big when I first got in Virginia. It was mostly it was neighborhoods then. Like mm-hmm. you would have, if you had the Richmond guys, you would, they would be divided by neighborhood, but then it would be Richmond versus Tidewater versus DC. Kind okay. of the biggest like central areas in the state. And if you had big fights, it would be that. Over the years, I don't really know what happened. More young guys came in, but you had started being more Bloods and Crips. You had a couple of GDs. You had some of the Latino gangs. Right. And then now, like on the younger generation, when I talk to people who are in the receiving prison that are mm-hmm. just going in, all the phones, all the showers, everything's run by the gangs. And it's never been like that anywhere I've been. You had like some places had like a blood phone, but it was also the point you just go and be like, yo, I need to use a phone. And they wouldn't, it wasn't the same kind of BS that you have other places. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know. I really don't know how that shift happened, but it's getting worse and worse in Virginia. Like you said, there's like a runway you have to go through to start your healing journey. And, and he definitely started after the fact. Also, I saw that also something that happened to us your father passed away while you were in prison. How did they notify you that that happened? So I got really lucky. I was actually in the hole at the time because I'd gotten caught with pancake syrup or leaving the chow hall with pancake syrup, which is contraband. Is this like, are you obsessed with syrup? <laughs> You're like, I just need something sweet for later. Pretty much. But so I was sitting back in the hole and I'd gotten notified. So my dad had fallen out. He had expatriated. My dad was very political, very extreme. And he had moved to Costa Rica and he had fallen out. He had been, he was like out running through the jungle barefoot and doing whatever. And he had fallen out and they found him and had to airlift him to San Jose. And he had had a blood clot and it had gotten Uh lodged and they managed to get it removed. And they, and they basically realized like, okay, you're going to need surgery. Mm -hmm. So I got the notice that, Hey, your dad almost died, but now he's okay. But now he needs surgery all kind of in one day. And then, uh, I was worried about it. He's in Costa Rica going to get the surgery. Okay. 
And so I, you know, I, I was worried about it. Everybody said, oh, it's routine. It won't be a big deal. They're going to replace it with a heart or his heart valve with a pig valve because he's going to live longer than even just an artificial one. Like he's great. And then the day of the surgery, I actually had the, the psychologist come to my door in the jail or in the hole and say, uh, hey, uh, like your dad's okay. I just want to let you know. And I was like, I hadn't been able to sleep and I'd been nervous. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like I thought, so I finally went to sleep. And then a couple hours later, my door just opened. And when you're in the hole, like they don't ever open the door. You have to yeah. walk, you have to put your hands there. They have to handcuff you. And then they walk you in, and put the shackles on. And the guy just walked in and was like, Jesse, man, you got to cuff up. It's like, look, I don't know. Just, just cuff up. So I did. And I went and so I'm like shuffling towards the front of the prison. And there's this big sign in the one area where the guards come in that says no inmates past this point. I was like, where are we going? And then he walks me through that. And I was like, what is happening? And there's my mom and my stepdad sitting there. And so they actually let them come to tell me and they let me give them a hug and then told me I had to like get away from them uh, and just said, yeah, your dad died. So your, your mom is remarried at this point. Okay. That's right. They were divorced when you were younger. So, and so he passed away in Costa Rica in the hospital. Yeah. Wow. And how about the funeral? Did he have a funeral? He, so it was kind of confusing because he had a funeral in Costa Rica where he was cremated and they remembered him. And then he had a memorial service here in Virginia and I, they, I couldn't go. Like I was a high level. They wouldn't approve it. It wasn't yeah. technically a funeral. And even if I had been able to, all they let you do is you got to wear your orange jumpsuit, your handcuffs and shackles. They let you go for 30 minutes before to talk to family, but you don't actually get to go to the service and then come back. But he, I mean, my dad had been kind of a piece of crap in part of his life. And then when he died after all the work that he'd done, being a substance abuse counselor, being an advocate, he filled an auditorium at the college of people that wanted to go and remember him and talk about what he had done. Mm -hmm. and, and so in a weird way, my dad has really inspired like the worst part of my life and mm -hmm. also the best. Like I wanted to one up him at being a gangster and I spent a lot more time in prison than he did. But I also wanted to one up him at being like a redemption story and helping people and showing up for people. Well, I think you're definitely doing that. How was your relationship right before he passed? Were you guys close? Was he writing you letters? Was he emailing you? you? <laughs> we we were we were close when I was younger, but he was he was distant because he was going to grad school, and then we got close. But I, I was kind of idolized him. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I went to prison, he showed up and he blamed himself. He was like, "Hey, I raised you on all these gangster stories. Like, I know this is my fault. These are you know, the sins of the father because all the stuff he did that he said he never got caught for that he should have." But when he moved to Costa Rica, I remember he, he came to ask me and this is, he was like, Hey, I really want to do this, but I know you're here and I need your permission. I'm like, I'm not going to tell him no. I just blew your whole world up and went to prison and, you know, messed everything up. But I remember really not wanting him to go. Being like, No, I don't want you to go. Like you're, you're the, the person I'm leaning on the most. And when we went down there, you can't use a regular phone system. So they had to set up international calls. And it was four times a year. I think it was originally three times a year. What year was this? This was 2006 that he died. So I think he went down in 2004. Okay. So only two years into your sentence. Yeah. And wow. so originally he was like, oh yeah, we'll play chess by mail and we'll write and we'll do this. And then I would get like a letter from him and then a couple months and then I'd get a letter from him and I'd get our phone call and then wouldn't hear from him. And he had just kind of checked out of everything. Everybody that I knew said he wasn't himself. And he had been such a huge part of the community up here because again, for all those people to show up, he had to be involved and he went down there and he was just never accepted. Always an outsider, despite looking Latino, despite speaking perfect Spanish. Yeah. He, he just couldn't find that community. And it just kind of tore him apart on the inside. Was he there the day you were sentenced? He was there. Yeah. And your, and your mom as well, obviously. How did they react? Did you see them? Cause I know you're facing only cause I've been through it. You're facing the judge. Could you actually see the way they were? Did you look back at them? I turned around briefly and saw dad wasn't the face that I really remember, but I know where they were sitting. And I remember that I saw them, but I don't like, I don't have a clear image of it. Yeah. But yeah, I know they were devastated. Um, and I didn't, you know, when I got back to the jail, when they stuck me in that, the, the cell and medical, they, they have like a, a safety phone you can use, which is so weird. I didn't know what to call. I didn't want to call them. Like I was afraid to call them when I first got locked up. And I was like, what am I going to say? Like, how do you, how do you have this conversation? Um, 
Did you just feel embarrassed that your actions led you to this point? Did you feel like a disappointment or? Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. You just didn't know what to say to them. Yeah. I, I just blew up my life. I just, you know, disappointed you in everything you've ever invested in me or put into me. Like I, I just felt like a failure and I felt like what, you know, you, why would you even like want to talk to me? Like what possible value do I have? And it was really only through them, like believing in me and loving me and encouraging me that I was able to kind of eventually get on my feet. But yeah, I mean, I thought my life was over. Absolutely. I, and it's so clear when I visited the prison that those who did not have family members constantly either writing them call or you can't call them, but visiting them, uh, accepting the phone calls. There was just such a clear mindset difference between the ones who did and ones who did not. So I think that's so important that we do help them. I understand it's easy to be out of sight, out of mind, but it, they even say those who, um, I was reading a statistic yesterday, just kind of doing a little bit of research that those who have active phone calls, emails with a loved one while in jail, their percentage of reoffending goes down by 44%. That's almost half. That's incredible. So I, I do think it's really important that they do that. So let's talk about that. So you did this application to the governor. Tell me, explain to me exactly how that works. Cause I didn't know it was an application. I thought the governor just kind of like went through this uh, pile of people that are in prison and just said, oh, he doesn't seem too bad. And he gave him the, you know, sentence. So how does it work? So, you know, we don't have parole in Virginia. So the only way oh, to get okay. out is a pardon. Like there's no other mechanism. Interesting. And everybody talked about it. And I wanted to have a really intentional approach. So some guys would just file day one and say, you need to let me out because it's not fair. I was like, OK, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to put together the best case possible. So I wanted to serve the high point of the sentencing guidelines which was 16 years. So after about 16 years, I started putting it together and I started writing the petition. And it's it's like this little form, but then it also says, tell us why you deserve to get out. Tell us who supports you. Tell us what your plans are. And so I wrote this thing that with support letters ended up being 300 pages long. And so I have oh this massive God. thing. I, I send it and out. written 300 pages? No. So I what I okay. would do is actually we had email by that point. I would fill it out on email and then I would have somebody put it into a Word document and then add it in and send it in. And I would just kind of like build it like that back and Got forth. Got it. Okay. Uh, so I got this whole thing done and after about six months had felt like I was together and, and sent it in and you just sent it to the secretary of the Commonwealth and just it's gone. And back then, I mean, there was no chance of it being granted back then. It was four or five people at the end of the governor's term who had given a campaign contribution or for really good PR because something had happened. OK, really? So how do you know about how many actually asked for it? There were 10,000 petitions on the desk when I put mine in. So about a third of the prison system. So and then only four or five usually get it back then. Yeah. Okay. And so. You know, it, it didn't seem like it was real, but then I had this weird series of events where a reporter reached out to me and was like, mm -hmm. hey, I'd love to do a story on you. I'm doing a story about the abolition of parole, and I think you're a great point for why we need parole, and then we're going to have somebody else who says why we don't. And then I started getting community support, and I was I was writing emails at this point, and I started just kind of like spamming Facebook because I had somebody at a Facebook page <laughs> for me. So I'd like write a little essay or write a little blurb and then send it out, and they would post it on my Facebook. And all of a sudden, like this, the, the city and where I'd come from, people were like supporting me and wanting to do that. And I had yeah. one guy who was like, oh, well, I, you know, contributed to his campaign. So I'll get you on the phone with his chief of staff. Mm -hmm. And like it started growing. And then the other thing that happened was the governor of Virginia got in, in a scandal where he had worn blackface back in the 80s. And like everybody said, you need to step I feel down. Like that's every governor. Ever. Probably at this point. <laughs> yeah, but his response, he, did, he didn't step down. But his response was, all right, well, if this is about inequity and racism, like let's look at inequity and racism. Like, where does What's it What's the governor's us? name? Governor Northam. Northam. OK. So what he did was he actually like initiated and gave further funding to start reviewing cases for clemency. He's like, hey, if this is a place where people are disproportionately affected, let's look at this. And then in the end, he granted more conditional pardons than every Virginia governor combined. 
he just said, hey, you know, these twelve hundred people need to not have a record. Holy shit. He, there were 100 people they actually he let out. But okay. he had people who had had a record previously who thought mm. were actual innocent or had done enough to claim change their name or kind right. of change their work. But there were 100 of us that were let out. And since then, not a single one's gone back, which is another thing about why we keep oh, people in amazing. prison that don't need to be. But I mean, some amazing things like this. My story is one got a guy who's the chief lobbyist for the ACLU of Virginia. We've got somebody else who's running a nonprofit in Richmond. I mean, people who just another guy's the regional director for um, a reform alliance, like mm-hmm. people who've hit the ground running and done amazing things in a matter of years. So you so how long from when you submitted it to the decision? How long was that? About two and a half years. Two and a half years. Okay. So you did. So you got out at year 19 of a 32 year sentence. So year 17, you're submitting this. The other thing I was going to ask you, why didn't you guys do an appeal to we did. your case? Oh, you did. So you yeah. just basically nothing ever went through. Yeah. I mean, what the court basically said is like, look, the judge can sentence you to whatever he wants. Like guidelines are discretionary wow. as long as it's within the statutory allowed. And back then, um, robbery, abduction, like any of these charges, because you technically have to abduct somebody to rob them. Was, it was 20 to life. Like that was the only thing you could get. Now they could spend some of that, but the minimum they could give you for each charge was 20 years. And so people were, people who had literally walked up to somebody on the street and said, Hey, give me your watch had just committed a robbery and abduction and got life sentences and didn't go home. Now, a lot of those have been reviewed and those were some of the guys we've gotten out on clemency, but yeah. yeah, they were literally giving people life sentences for robberies in which no one was hurt or just these crazy situations. Okay. So you, you get the decision. How are you notified? It was two o'clock in the afternoon. I had just finished doing burpees. They had transferred me to a dormitory and it's Eight horrible. burpees, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're like locked inside all the time. So I'm, yeah. I'm doing it in between these massive bunks and the counselor came out and said, you need to come here and was calling me in there. And I didn't know what to think because that's usually like how I found out my dad died is not usually how it happens. Like usually they call you in the office and said, hey, so-and-so died. Like, good luck. So I kind of like ran in there and I was nervous and I didn't know what was going on. And this was during COVID and she was really strict about everybody wearing a mask and I didn't have one. She was like, just get in here. And there was a speakerphone and, and I just said, hello. I said, Mr. Crossan, are you sitting down? I said, no. Like why? She said, because you've been granted a pardon. You're going home today. Holy shit. And I just, I remember like kind of shaking and tearing up and just like literally falling to a knee and, and like gasping. And is this real? Like it's, it's two in the afternoon. Like are, and then they ran me to sign the paperwork and then they yeah. ran me to medical and ran me to property. And I'm going all around and I still was like, OK, they made a mistake or this isn't going to happen or something else is going on. And it wasn't until I came back to the dorm to get my stuff that everybody's like clapping and shaking my hand and hugging me that I was like, holy shit, like this might be real. And two and a half hours or excuse me, an hour and a half later, I like walked out to the front of the prison. I saw my mom for the first time in a year and a half. because There'd been no visits during COVID. And I had to fill out all this paperwork and she was like 10 feet away. And then I went over and I gave her a hug and yeah. I'm like holding her. And she's like, Jesse, let's get the F out of here. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> and I walked out, I walked out with this little box and some documents. Yeah. And I like, I just remember the colors and the light just not being real, just feeling like I was in a movie and it just, I could not believe it. So did you actually see the stuff that you went in with at 18 years old? No, that was all gone at that point. Yeah, so they make you, okay. when you get to receiving, at least in Virginia, they make you send all that home or throw it away. Oh, gotcha. That makes sense be there for a while. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you must have just been, like you said, you're in probably in disbelief, a dream. You're afraid they would probably take it away from you. I can totally imagine having all of those mixed emotions. I mean, I can't imagine, but I, I could just, that's just so wild. I remember when my brother was getting out, he was very afraid that someone would try to do something to keep him there longer. Is that normal? I've heard about it in a few cases, but it, it wasn't nearly as rare as a kind of like myth around it. 
I see. Um, okay. And I mean, I was surprised because when I came back, I didn't know what to expect if people knew. But again, I was getting hand handshakes and hugs and people yeah. clapping. And like, that was the response that I got. So I, I think, and let me say the only time, because we, we would have guys that would get out. Only time we weren't happy for them was when we knew they were going to come back. It was like, dude, if you're going to waste your chance and make it look bad on the rest of us, like, just stay here. Like, don't don't mess it up for the rest of us who want to go out. And that was the only time anybody yeah. was really mad about somebody getting out. Otherwise, for me, it was like, man, I want you to get out. I want you yeah. to go have a family, live a life, do something. Just, just Did don't you waste see it. someone leave and come back? I had guys come back five times while I was Really? In. Oh, my God. That's incredible. I'm incredibly sad. <laughs> but, like, and then what would people do when they come back in? Are they just like, man, what the hell are you doing here? Like... I mean, it depended. Some people just yeah. kind of lived that life. Like there, there yeah. was definitely a group that that's what they lived and that's what they expected. Yeah. And I remember the one that broke my heart was this guy who had been out. He hadn't even been out that long, got violated, came back. And literally somebody still had some of his stuff and was like, hey, here's your stuff back. Was like, oh. So that means like within a month or something? Oh, no, this was, it was probably a year, but. Oh, wow. Okay. But still, that that's very quick. Let's see here. The Did you ever get a chance to thank the governor? I did. I, I was really, so. I was able to send or like kind of an email because yeah. uh, this person had done it. I'm actually on a text chain with him still, which is really oh, that's great. Awesome. But he had a second chances event where he was at the end of his, his uh, term. He said, I want to celebrate, you know, not what we've done, but all the people and all the things they're going to do with it. So he invited everybody who'd been granted a pardon, as well as some people who'd been granted under the old parole system to come and just share their stories. And these were people who'd been actually innocent, just yeah. massive people. And I got to give him a Christmas card and I got to shake his hand and Amazing. I got to say thank you for like. And did did he stay and talk to you any longer? Or was it, it just kind of quick? It was it was pretty quick. But like I said, he's on yeah. a text chain. He still checks in sometimes. With That's the, amazing. Call him the citizens of Northam. So it's a bunch <laughs> of us who've been granted a pardon. And he'll yeah. check in and wants to know how everybody's doing or if there's anything you can do to help. Or Yeah. It's been pretty amazing. So you walk out that door. Your mom's like, get the hell out of here. Let's go. I'm assuming you obviously have no clothes except what did they give you? Just like. It's like khakis. So you get like khaki shirt, uh, pants and like a khaki colored, uh, yeah. like collared shirt and these blue boat shoes. And the pants they gave me were like literally this long over my feet <laughs> because they were, it was ridiculous. But I just rolled them up. I was like, I don't care. Like, don't I'm not care. worried about any of this. And probably first stop was like Walmart. Well, the, well OK, so <laughs> uh, remember the reporter that I had told you about that yeah. had done the story on me. We had developed a relationship. So she had had a, an event one night where we you know, she was doing stories on all the stuff that was happening when we had scabies outbreaks, when they were strip searching kids, when they would, she was doing all these stories. And then one day I called and I was, I had a story tip for her and I was like, Hey, are you okay? What's going on? And she said, Jesse, I, I got something I want to talk to you about, but like, if this happens, I can't be your reporter anymore. Like we would have to be friends because it'd be unethical for me to report on you. I was like, Hey, I don't care. I'll find another reporter. Like what's going on. And she had this personal crisis that somebody she really cared about was in, in trouble and was in danger. And uh, I talked to that person and we actually managed to like get them temporarily into treatment and, and kind of make a change. Mm -hmm. And that turned into a friendship. And then in the beginning of 2021, turned into a relationship. We didn't really know how that happened. Oh, wow. So after meeting my mom in the front, we drove to the end of the driveway for the prison and waited for her to show up. I see. Okay. And we had a stop to make before we went shopping. Uh, okay. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> I remember uh, I took my brother directly to Walmart because same thing. He had nothing. He walked, he walked out with like socks and sandals on. And it like basically was like disposable. Like what you would get yeah. like a hospital. Yeah. And I was like, okay, we got to take you to Walmart. And he kind of had a bit of a mental breakdown. Oh, and he was only there about three years. So I can only imagine what you felt. I mean, were the options just... When we went to Costco rather than Walmart, um, and that was even, even worse. Too much. Yeah, I was just like, I can't... I mean, we... Because in my mind, I was like, I was trying to imagine what I needed. I was like, all right, I need boxers and socks and clothes. Yeah. And then I need food and then I need tools and then I need like how... And it just was like spiraling. And I just, I was like, I got to go. I can't, I can't do this. I, right. I can't do this. Yeah. 
Um, oh my god! It took me months to be comfortable in a big, busy public space. It's not. It's not an easy transition. So, what did you do the first night? Did you actually go out to eat or anything like that, or were you just a little too overwhelmed? So, by the time, I mean, she didn't pick me up until three thirty. Mm-hmm. Courtney and I got done at. I maybe met my mom at like four thirty, and then she lived forty five minutes outside of town. So, by the time we were done shopping, I mean, it was like six o'clock. Where we had bought steaks at Costco, and I was like, "Oh, I can't wait to have a steak." My mom was like, "Oh, you can't. We don't have time. We're gonna have to do those tomorrow." I remember looking at her like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm waiting 20 years for steak. What do you mean we can't have them? But weirdly, she was right because I remember getting home. And so it was me, me, my mom, her boyfriend and and Courtney. And she was like, oh, there's some some stew in the fridge. And I remember I took like one bite and felt like I was going to vomit and was still just like nervous and could not eat. So we just kind of like sat around and like we talked, but we also didn't know what the hell to talk about. Like, yeah. what do you talk? Like, it was just surreal. Then we went to bed and I didn't sleep for three days. So went to bed, Courtney falls asleep, they're asleep upstairs. And so I just kind of got up and like wandered through the house and there was this little back porch. And that was really where it started to become real to me. Up until then I'd been in shock. And all of a sudden I'm like, I'm in the world. Like I'm yeah. I'm hearing noises. And about midnight when I was just sitting there kind of like being happy in, in a way I'd never been, I remember them saying that there was ice cream in the fridge. And so I went and I, I got this ice cream and it's one of the like Magnum ice creams that had the shell. And yeah, I didn't yeah. know that because I was doing it in the dark. And I was like, why is this ice cream so hard? <laughs> they kept sticking it in the microwave and Finally, I ended up with like a soupy milkshake with kind of a hard shell, and it was the greatest thing ever. And then I just sat there on that porch until six in the morning when other people woke up and just felt the greatest sense of like peace. I cried a lot. I, um, yeah. My brother, same thing. He was, he didn't sleep very much the first few nights. Um, he said he was having a lot of nightmares that he was back in prison. Did, did that happen to you as well? I, you know, I talked to a lot of people that have that. I have not one stream that I was back in prison. Okay. I don't. And somebody told me this. I had a buddy who got out after 31 years mm-hmm. and- some people stay in touch and some people don't. He just sent me one email. He said, Jesse, it feels like waking up from a dream. Like, I don't know how to describe it any other way. And that was exactly my experience. Like the trauma is still there. I still struggle. But not once did it seem, it, it's almost like the prison part wasn't real. Like that yeah. part of my life just was, wasn't real. Well, they say tra- they, trauma does that to your brain. It kind of s- segregates it. And um, it's almost hard to tap back into it sometimes. Sometimes the memory becomes so fuzzy, but obviously the feelings, the residual feelings and... Uh, you know, the visceral feelings are still there for sure. But that's one of, been one of the things that's interesting because I, I tend to talk about prison a lot on social media and people say, isn't that traumatizing? I think sometimes some topics it has been and that's why I kind of steer away from those. But it's really been kind of healing because it's allowed me to like relive or re-experience things, but with the understanding I have today. Like, yeah. hey, okay, this did happen. Like, okay, this is real. Like, oh, yeah. now I understand why that was. And that's just been really helpful. That's really helped me kind of put things in perspective and move yes. forward. Definitely. And so how did you get into the Second Chance Foundation? How did that all, obviously you want to give back. I can only imagine because you've gone through so much. But why is that so important to you? Is it just because of everything you experienced? Much. I mean, I watched my experience inside where I'm going to college and I'm eating, you know, eating decently and I have enough Mm -hmm. money for coffee and other people don't. I watched the period getting out of like having a place to go and being able to get a truck within a week. And it was a shitty old truck, but like it was a truck. I was able to go. I was able to work. I had support. And then watching other people, I, you know, I had a buddy, um, he'd been out for three years. And I remember he called me one day. He was like, man, I finally got a vehicle. Like, I finally made it. And I remember thinking like, that's the experience most people have. Like they are scrambling for three years. And so I wanted to figure out what I could do to change that. And it all started with, with social media because I have a friend who's a marketing manager and was like, hey, Jesse, like your story's compelling. You need to tell it. So I started making videos and they took off in a way that I never imagined. And I was having a conversation with somebody at a party one night. Most bizarre thing. And he said, who are you? Like, where do you come from? What's your story? And I talked to him and he said, well, you know, let me take some notes. And he said, I think this is fascinating. I had just applied for this big national nonprofit job. And I was so excited because I was like, oh, I'll be able to do something. And the next morning I get an email and he says, hey, 
don't take this job. Like they're big, they're slow. You're not going to be able to do anything. You have a talent that is going to be wasted. And I believe in this so much that if you start a 501c3, I will fund you. Oh, wow. And I was like, and he, I mean, he put a number on there and I just like, I remember looking over to Courtney, like, is this real? And she was like, I don't know. I guess it is. So I filed the paperwork and somehow got the, the, the letter within two weeks rather than six months like mm-hmm. I should have and was funded and was able to start doing work and didn't really know what that looked like. You know, we've done direct reentry classes through through the UV Equity Center where we're trying to help people out of long-term incarceration. We're working on a narrative project. We're working on a, a tech project to connect mentors and mentees, people getting out with somebody in the community that can help them through what they're struggling with. And a lot of what I do is, is really kind of just filling in the gaps. It's, you know, going to the one-stop shop, which is this, all the service providers in the community get together and we're trying to figure out how to get more people there. So I was emailing probation parole this morning, like, Hey, can we give you more flyers? Like, how can we help facilitate this? I'm going to take those into the juvenile center and hand them out for all the guys who are under six months. So it's just kind of filling in the gaps of where we don't have a connection of services or where people don't have a relationship or people don't know what's going on. I'm amazed in, in the space. It seems like in the nonprofit world, but especially in the social justice world, like there's just this divide between groups. It's like, Hey, Let's just forget all that. Like, let's just figure out how we can make this work. And it's been really cool to be part of a solution in some cases. And it's been really frustrating, but really gratifying to struggle with a solution in others. Yeah. Do you find that most um, prisoners, when they get out, that they're receiving to all this information? Because I've actually met some who uh, almost reject it and try to make their own way. Sure. And also speaking to the car, I think the car thing is really interesting. You know, a lot of times they can't get a vehicle right when they get out. And I, I used to think like, oh man, if they were allowed to drive for Uber, that would be fantastic. But Uber will not allow felons. So I was actually thinking one day, I was just talking about it with my sister. I was like, oh, imagine if it was like Uber con where everyone knows that, yeah. that, that there are felons or ex-prisoners, but it's up to them if they're willing to give them a chance. It's all out there. It's disclosed. I mean- Sounds like a business. Just because plan. someone hasn't been caught doesn't mean they're not, you know, a, a regular Uber driver could be just as dangerous if someone, you know, if provoked or whatever the case may be. But the fact that they could rent a car, be able to start making money immediately, it gives them a means to get around. Yeah. Even things as simple as like an Instacart shopper. You can't do any of that if yeah. you have a record. Which I think is kind of a disservice because I think you're kind of ostracizing a group that really needs something that quick and easy to start making some money. A lot of them are just, you know, they just, they kind of, they went in broken and come out even more broken and really don't know how to self-start. And the things are supposed to be in place, but they're not. Like I had a buddy who was released to his sister's house in Mississippi. He didn't have a birth certificate or a social security card. So he's down there and he's trying to get a job. They're like, well, we need an ID. And he's like, well, how am I supposed to get it? He calls the prison and prison said they gave it to him. They never did. He's going back and forth. And for two months, he's like on a couch and like doing odd jobs and picking up jobs at Home Depot when he can. And he's worried about getting in trouble. And his PO is breathing down his neck about why didn't he have a job yet? And it's like, how do you expect this guy to succeed? Like Mm -hmm. this is this is just untenable. Yeah. I also want to talk about just the um, industrial prison complex as a whole. I was reading some statistics here. In 2018, when it was at its highest point, to call to have a phone call with a prisoner could be as high as a dollar a minute. It's now gone down significantly. President Joe Biden has actually done a lot of work to bring that down. In the state of New York, it's actually free now, prisoner phone calls, which is fantastic. But still, texting, um, SMS, video are highly unregulated and very expensive. can be upwards to almost $15 to send a video. Why does this happen? I mean, there's so much proof that connection is the opposite of addiction and any other mental health issues. Why would we ever put these walls of obstruction to have a connection with someone? 
Why do you think that is? Why do you do you think it's just egregious practices or? I think it's some egregious practices. I think it's a misunderstanding of the principles of capitalism. And I yeah. think it's opportunistic. I mean, the, when we still had tape players and CD players in prison, the number one vendor and eventually the only vendor that we could use was a former DOC employee. Who, like, yeah. I wonder how they got that contract. Like, yeah. And so if you have the idea of like competition brings prices down, but then you have a monopoly where they can literally charge whatever they want and the prison gets kickbacks for doing it. Well, they're say yes. That's probably 60% of it, that there's not enough competition out there or there is a competition, but they're unwilling to get into the space. Maybe they think it's too low, you know? When it's one contract. And once they have that contract, they can yeah, do whatever they want. Exactly. I also, one thing that happened to us, I actually find anything that you monetize in the prison actually ends up hurting the families of the prisoner. The family ends up, it's not the prisoner, the family ends up dealing with it. So I think, I don't think they realize that because I've heard the other argument that, oh, the public shouldn't have to pay for this. Well, if you actually think about it, we have 1.8 million people incarcerated. That's There's only 157 million people that can actually pay taxes here in the United States. That's less than 0.001% of taxpayers that would actually go to this complex to basically make it free to the families. Um, I also, I was in Iceland. This was kind of interesting. Now, Iceland's a very small country. And if you've never been, you should go. It's amazing. Their population is only about 370,000 people. Very, very low. Do you know how many prisoners they have? Just take a guess. I want you to take a guess. 700. 56. That's it. That's 0.000. Yes, three zeros. Three five percent of the population. And even for murder, which would be considered the most egregious crime of all time, their max is 20 years. And they 100% believe in rehabilitation. Why do you think Americans are so opposed to this? Do you think it's just simply they find that too radical? I think it's really easy to feel good about ourselves when we can other someone else. We can think we're we're different than somebody else. Like that mm-hmm. person is bad, but we're good. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it because people don't like kind of looking at their own souls and seeing that we're all capable of, of good and terrible things. Mm-hmm. I also think it's just a lack of exposure. And I've talked to so many people and social media has opened the door for this where they've said, hey, I always believe that if, you know, once you do the crime, you just got to do the time and shut up. Mm-hmm. And then it happened to my brother. And like, well, this happened and this wasn't fair. Yeah. He was actually innocent or oh my God, they gave him 25 years for possession of drugs? Like, this doesn't make sense. It's just one horror story after the other, but as long as it's kept separate, as long as it doesn't affect us personally, it's really easy to keep a bubble around where people outside of that are are just not your concern. Yeah, absolutely. I I do believe the Scandinavian countries, especially, now mind you, we do have a major population difference. 300,000 versus 350 million, this is a huge difference. It's very hard to take care of a community of that size. When I was in Iceland, I noticed that basically they all know each other. They actually even have an app to know if you guys are related so you don't date too close of cousins. True story. So I can understand based off mathematics how it would work much better in a Scandinavian country. But the fact is that um, and also their reoffend rate is less than 20 percent. So of those 56 people, only a few go back once. So those are the troublemakers of Iceland. How do you also feel about people that... Do you believe people should forever remain with felonies on their record? 
I mean, I think that anything you mm. do to stigmatize and kind of label people as other or less than is problematic. Yeah. yeah. I think I understand the idea of probation and parole, especially if it's designed to make people succeed or it's designed to say, hey, we want to make sure you have the resources you need. Mm -hmm. But having these long terms or having this label that goes with people forever or limits people forever, like yeah. there are jobs that I'll never be able to do. There are things I'll never be able to do. And that doesn't make sense because if we're restoring somebody to society, if we're saying, hey, you're safe enough to let out in the world, mm -hmm. it doesn't really make sense to continue to say, but we're never going to trust you again. But you think some crimes should definitely keep it like a pedophile? I, I think I mean, I think they're practical things. Like if yeah. somebody convicted of embezzlement, I wouldn't let them run my books. Ooh, like right, right. Somebody molested children. I wouldn't let them run a daycare. I do think that if we're going to let somebody out in the world, we need to have the framework in which they're able to move forward. And any barrier or limitation of that within practical means should be minimized. Right. Let, let's put it into a real uh, real world use case study. So say you were uh, convicted of embezzlement, but you're applying to be a uh, line cook at a restaurant. Should they know about the embezzlement charge? I don't think it's relevant. No. So then you believe there should be like a system that basically says this will not show up if it doesn't apply. So a lot of a lot of states have what's called ban the box, which mm -hmm. prevents employers from putting the question on an application of whether you've been convicted of a felony. Okay. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, they'll then find out later or they'll do a background check anyways later. Yeah. But what it at least does is gets people in the door because we found that the rate of success on a job interview, if you can actually get in front of the person, is far higher than if you just submit an application unseen. So at least removes one of those barriers. But yeah, I don't think that someone's history of embezzlement has any, you know, capacity or any effect yeah. on their ability to, to fry eggs. Yeah. I think also the other thing is we really have 50 countries within one country <laughs> and each state does a little bit different. We tend not to share information between states very well. Some states think doing it this way. Also, there is um, geographical climate differences between what you have to do. So I do think getting everyone on the same page is really tough. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, what what would work here in Florida might not necessarily work in uh, Minnesota, even down to something as simple as climate differences. So I do think getting them all on the same page. What do you think is the biggest myth or misconception about prison that people have? I think the biggest one is, again, that the prisoners are somehow inherently bad or wrong or different. Yeah. And I think it's really that, you know, only bad stuff happens there. And it, the reality is that I saw the absolute worst of humanity and really the best of humanity in prison. I saw people comfort one another and support one another and guide one another and like care for one another in a kind of brotherhood way that I've only ever heard of from the military. But I also saw incredibly heinous, horrible things. So I think it's just the idea that the prison is a monolith or that people who are incarcerated are a monolith. And that's mm -hmm. just not true. Yeah. Is there anything you miss about prison? I know that's a weird question, but <laughs> you miss, were there for 19 years. I had a great routine. I had a great structure. I knew how to deal with everything. Mm -hmm. And I get to read a lot. And so yeah. every time I'm in a new situation that's stressful, because every new situation is stressful, there's a part of me that misses the simplicity. Mm -hmm. But I don't miss being there. I miss feeling like I was competent. Because I think there's an advantage to being a small fish in a big pond. I was a fairly smart guy in a place with a better education than most people there with a yeah. broader life experience. So it gave me a position to be able to help other people and feel really competent and comfortable. There weren't a lot of days somebody would come to me with a question I couldn't answer or a role I couldn't take on. And when I get out to the world and when I'm at like South by Southwest, I'm like, I feel out of place because this is such a radically different environment. Like this guy's yeah. a CEO, this guy's a venture capitalist. I'm a guy who was in prison. But every step of the way, like I'm realizing that we just have to kind of grow to the space we're in. And I th I kind of wish somebody had told me that when I was younger, like, hey, if you can just grow to the space you're in, like, so if you pick these friends, this is how big you're going to be. But if you mm -hmm. pick these friends, like this is who you get to be. And I kind of miss feeling like the security of that when I was in prison. So before you went in, were you, you, you just turned 18, were you in college or just out of high school? Just out of high school. So you got your high school diploma, graduated. 
Did you have a girlfriend? I I had a so I had the I told you I was going to I had a plane ticket to go see a girl who had been like my high school like love like I gotcha. Uh, so I had a plane ticket to go see her, but I was also dating some girl locally, but it was just around cocaine. Like we were <laughs> not compatible. It. We just got high together. Gotcha. Um, so there was not a lot, but I, I actually had a, another high school girlfriend who showed up and came to see me and took phone calls and did a lot of stuff. So I was, I was able to be connected, but at the same time I had, I had made the choices that really left me pretty profoundly alone despite all the sport I had. So, I mean, obviously you were a young man when you went in. So now you're out is dating radically different than what you dealt with beforehand. Obviously we have Tinder now, all the apps. I mean, you didn't even have Instagram when you went out. You had nothing. When, and yeah, social media has definitely changed it. It's, it's you weird. didn't even have a smartphone, right? But you know, I was in a relationship with Courtney for oh, right. um, a, a year and a few months. And then we broke up last November. So really like the only dating I've done as an adult has been since last November. I see. Which has been interesting. Um, I, I at least have some foresight going in and I have some intention. When I was younger, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Right. And, my, you know, my goal is I want to enter into every interaction, go on every date and be like honest and have integrity and be really clear about what I want, and what I need. And so, you know, I decided at the beginning of this year, I was like, I'm not going to get into a relationship. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to like live and explore. And of course, like I've you now possibly met someone or more than one person. And then yeah. all of a sudden had this rush of feelings and feel like right. a teenager and what I want to do. And I'm struggling with that. I'm struggling with what I want. So do you feel like you're... And I don't mean this as an offense, but just more like emotionally stunted a bit. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I'm like, because I'm, you haven't had the chance to date and go through the emotions, have normal breakups, things like that. So do you tell people immediately like, oh, I did 19 years. So that's what's so weird about my situation is that <laughs> there's one person that I had to explain my history, but everybody else knows like either because I was right, I, like the, the cover story in the, the local newspaper. Or I've like, I've been mm -hmm. on TV or I'm on TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's weird because people, it's. It's not like I approach people. I'm like, hey, here's who I am. Here's my story. I have people approach me. This is insane. Like when Courtney and I broke up literally that day in the DMs, I was like, oh, by the way, if you ever want to come, I'd love to see you. And I was like, this just feels weird. Like, well, that's what I'm saying. Dating's so different because like girls definitely have more currency now and we're more forward. You know, our sexuality is a little more out there, which is great. So I'm sure that was totally, you know, in the early 2000s, it was not like that. So I'm sure for you, you're kind of just like, wait. How I mean, it's I amazing. <laughs> I mean, really, I, yeah. I like the way things have gone. Yeah. But also, I mean, I, I struggle with that. Like, is is going out and like sleeping around or dating a bunch of people, is, does that actually like add to our lives? Yeah. Does it, because I found that there are things that make me feel like more full. Like, there, there are people who, when I'm with, or I'm thinking one person in particular, that when who I'm with, I feel full and I feel happy and I yeah. feel like this is what I want. And I've, you know, dated some really beautiful women and I've had some amazing experiences, but I, I leave feeling kind of empty and sure. I, I struggle with that. Yeah. So for you, just having that deep connection is yeah. extremely important. It's not just about, you know, getting in and getting out. Right. So what's next for you? What What are the next plans? Obviously. So yeah. from what I remember on your videos, you're technically still on probation. I am. Till August but how year. were you able to travel? So I, anytime I travel, I just need a written travel pass. Okay. So I have to write to my PO and say this, I, I need like five of them next month. And she, she literally, I remember she sent me back one time. She was like, Jesse, I really like you, but you're such a pain in the ass. I've never had to deal with somebody requesting so much travel. All right, TikTok star. But I just, you know, I send her an itinerary and she yeah. generally approves it. Um, I actually, I'm doing some personal travel at the end or beginning of September for the first time. Usually it's like a podcast or related yeah. to work. But yeah, August of next year, I get off paper. That's going to be good. We, we have a bunch of projects with the nonprofit, which I'm excited about. We just had a board meeting before getting on the plane to come down here. I'm actually starting a tech company with a group that I met in at South by Southwest mm -hmm. because we want to bring tech into a part of the solution for reentry and, and prison services because there's all this money being spent on things that just don't work and there's yeah. no practical experience and there's no insight. 
And the idea of using XR, using virtual reality and augmented reality to teach people skills and then giving them an environment which to practice those skills until they can do them perfectly. It's been shown to work in uh, military training. It's been shown Amazing. to work with teachers. We just haven't applied the technology to people who probably need it most and where society would benefit from it most. So we're working on the all the uh, documentation and the structuring for the joint venture and then we're going to start that project. So when you got out, um, how... How uh, quickly did you adapt to the new technology out there? Was it a struggle for you? Yes and no. I mean, I, I got on everything. I was I had a phone, and I remember one of the first pictures from the day after I got out was me and Courtney sitting there looking at our phones, and I was like, mm-hmm. how did that happen? But even <laughs> then, for the first couple months, I remember I would go places, and I'd be like, why is everybody in their phone? Like, what's wrong with you? What's going yeah, yeah. on? But at the same time, yeah, it's become such an integral part of my life where it's the first thing I grab in the morning, and I interact yeah. with it. It's, it's a learning experience. It's, it's definitely a learning experience. But yeah, it, it came on faster than I thought. And also I, I have some resistance. to it. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine because there's nothing like having um, when, when actually when I put my phone away for a few hours, I, I relax. It's amazing how much it, it is anxiety inducing only because it's your entire life, your email, your messages, your work. So I, I completely understand that. All right. So we have some questions. Okay. You're very good at answering questions on your TikTok, by the way. You answer even like really ridiculous questions like, how do you poop in prison? (laughs) (laughs) So I'd answer it because a lot of people are very curious. I think this is a tail old question, but if you want to, I think it's good to answer it. So they basically want to know, basically men that choose to have sex with other men in prison, are they actual homosexuals or is it due to the environment? How does this happen? Someone who was straight goes in, this is happening, and why does it happen? And they tend to be straight when they get out. I, have a I psych- know it's a loaded question. <laughs> I have a psych degree, but I'm also not, this is not my area of expertise, yeah. but I'll give you a couple observations. I saw some people who seemed to be sex addicts and they went in and they were continuing to kind of chase that high or whatever escape okay. they could find. And that was usually paired with drug use, usually paired mm-hmm. with self-destructive behavior. That was one impetus. Uh, I also saw people who went in and just clearly were never tempted, had never any, any interaction, no curiosity. And I saw other people who went in, had sex, and then got out and got into relationships and have been straight ever since. So I would say we all exist on a spectrum. Sure. And you would have to be on that spectrum to the point where you feel comfortable enough to explore this, even if, and there was usually a lot of shame around it and a lot of judgment, a lot mm-hmm. of, and there were also the, the roles, which I always thought was so crazy to me because it was like, oh, if you're the, if you're the man in the relationship, if you're the one who does the penetration, you're not gay, but if you're receiving, you're gay. And it's like, <laughs> bro, I don't think that's how it worked, but like that makes yeah. you feel better. Um, so I think it's just, I think people often not being able to be honest with themselves, but also, I mean, I had a lot of candid conversations with people and, and I remember yeah. one guy being like, yeah, like I got molested as a kid. So like, this is what I was used to. And like, this is what I turned to. And, yeah. and like, I tried to date women, but like, it just doesn't work for me. And I, he said he's attracted to women, but he couldn't have sex with them. And I just remember like, in his case, how complicated is that? Like, how do you yeah. heal that as an adult, as you're trying to go through and figure out relationships, like not only in the world, but in prison, yeah. how do you do that? So you think probably most likely it's more of a trauma response or just the... Um, I think just, yeah, it just depends. I think some people yeah. are on the spectrum and therefore they're open to the experience and they yeah. have it. Some people yeah. are acting out addictive behavior. Some people are recreating yeah. trauma from their childhood. I mean, again, it's I don't think there's a, a single answer for, for any of it, yeah. but um, it's it's one of those... Is it as egregious as the movies make it seem? Like where like you're in the shower and like some dude, they call him the bull queer, comes in like in Shawshank only because I watched that movie last night. Like, is it that egregious where it, it would happen that way or not so much? I know in some places I've heard of horror stories about things yeah. like that, but it, where I was, I heard of one case that somebody was sexually assaulted okay. and that was a case where they were kind of like in a relationship and they were going back and forth. And it was like, it was basically like a dismissed domestic dispute. I, see. Um, okay. I literally never in my time heard of somebody grabbed and held down. I, it may have happened, but yeah, it was not like you see in the movie. 
I see. One other question was, how do you masturbate in prison? Um, well, it's really easy. If you're in one of the prisons that has cells, you're two person to a cell. Yeah. But there's always a time that one person can be in and one person can be out. And it's really yeah. simple. You just say, hey, I need some time. When they do a door break at, at certain levels or when, when you can c- control the door at the other, yeah. just they go out and you stay in. And oh, you, so you guys are that candid about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, God. Oh, of course, you're dudes. What always got me was like guys would have these magazines. They would call them freak books. They're like pornography. Mm-hmm. And they would like trade around. It's like, you know what he was doing with that? And your guys are swapping it around yeah. and like eating a honey bun. And But in a dormitory, it was hard. Because you're just in there together. There's not yeah. a moment of privacy. So you would find guys would like sneak into the shower at like two in the morning and like hang a curtain up and like try to build a little like shed oh, that they could have God. their curtain in or yeah, people went to extremes. So would you get in trouble if they caught you? Definitely. Okay. So it's not allowed in any capacity. I don't consider it like, um, well, I mean, technically it's, I, I don't think it was on the books getting in trouble for masturbating, but like being in the shower at night was a charge or I hanging you. a curtain was a charge or all those things were a charge. Gotcha. This is an interesting question. Cause I actually, I have thought about this before. Do you believe that male prison should have women COs? I think it complicates things, but I think the idea of saying that someone isn't qualified to do a job because of their gender is incredibly problematic. This is a case where I saw the best and the worst. I saw a lot of women who were like the ultimate soothing, calming thing for men. Mm-hmm. So when guys would get angry or when they're acting irrationally, they could calm them down in a way that a guy couldn't. But I also saw lots of affairs and lots of complications and lots of... So that's pretty common. Okay. So, yeah. That's, I always thought maybe that probably would not be the best thing to have a women see. I could understand them being like the psychologist, the nurse, you know, things where they're not in and out of the actual prison walls frequently. But, um, you mean, what happened in New York State that uh, one CEO ended up <laughs> literally throwing her life away to help that guy escape? What was the most creative meal you made in prison? Because I know you guys can get pretty creative with... We had a guy who would make um, the bag chips, Jamaican jerk chicken. How he would get. So we had this this like chicken pouch you could buy on commissary uh-huh. and he would get orange soda. And sometimes you would have to change the orange soda with uh, the trustee who worked. O- not the trustee, but like the guy who worked over in a certain building because they uh-huh. only had it there. And he would trade for it with the CO. And it was just like this mix of ingredients. It would come from every corner of the prison to come together. He would like soak the chicken in the, the orange soda and then he would add these other spices. and He would pay somebody in the kitchen. Tasted amazing. It was, was the it best good? thing I've ever had. Oh my amazing. god, that's hilarious! Jerk chicken. Actually, jerk chicken's delicious. So I get it. Could you? Did you ever sext when you were in prison? Yeah. So what happens with that? Like, I know they read all the emails. Would you get in trouble for? So this is really funny. So when I had that long distance relationship that ended up being really unhealthy. Yeah. I remember the day that I stopped talking to her, and there was this email exchange around that. The investigator who reads all the emails pulled yeah. me aside when I was going to work that day. It was like, Jesse, what's wrong with you? That girl is good for you. You need to call her back. You need to. I was like, what the? F-? And I realized she's reading all my stuff. Um, That's hilarious. But yeah, like phone sex and sending emails and writing letters. I, I think the main advantage that I got as far as that realm was I learned to externalize and verbalize and vocalize things that other right. people don't because you have to talk about it. Yeah. You can be in a relationship for years and never really talk about things and just kind of fumble through it. When you can't actually touch another person. You have to verbalize everything. Sure. And I know a lot more about myself than I ever would have. And I know how to ask questions and I know how to be open and I know how to be receptive to things that I wouldn't have been if I hadn't yeah. been forced to learn those things at a distance. Would people like get naked pictures in the prison like from there or, or was that pretty shut down? You weren't allowed to, but there were ways that, yeah, that happened. Yeah, that that happened. One thing I noticed is obviously people get phones in there and they would make Instagram accounts and like have full blown the conversations with people and they would post pictures. And so I don't think people realize how much they can actually do once they get a cell phone in there. Absolutely. Yeah. Where's the first place you want to go when you get off probation? 
So I, I have the issue with business. A lot of countries, even when you're off probation, won't let you to go in. Yeah. I have a really good friend in Ireland that I'd like to go see. I'd like to go to Iceland. So I've always said I want to go to Iceland, Ireland, and Scotland. Oh, you um, love it. All of them are great. I'd like to go to Costa Rica where my dad was when he yeah, died. Sure. But those are kind of my bucket list. Is he is he buried there? Uh, he, he was uh, cremated. Oh, he cremated. Okay. Yeah, you'll probably never be allowed in Canada, but it's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, Canada's really tough. I got invited to speak at a tech conference up there uh-huh. and could not get. And I was just like, you know what? Canada is notorious. Even if you have a DUI, they'll turn you away. They are so tough. Iceland, I believe they're totally cool with letting you in. But um, the UK, yeah, I'm not totally sure. I had the same thing because I had a speaking event in England yeah. and the same kind of restrictions as Canada. It was like, oh, my God. Yeah, but I think Ireland, because it's not part of the UK, might Hopefully be a little bit be. better. Or I think once you get into the EU, then you can do a bunch of things. Yeah, yeah so that'd be good. Well, honestly, thank you so much for coming. This has been great. And I wish you all the best of luck and best travels when you're finally off probation. Thank you for having me. Thank you.